Chapter One of Bealby, a Holiday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Bealby, a Holiday by H. G. Wells. Chapter One Young Bealby Goes to Shunts. Subchapter One The cat is the offspring of a cat and the dog of a dog but butlers and ladies maids do not reproduce their kind they have other duties so their successes have to be sought among the prolific and particularly among the prolific on great estates such are gardeners but not undergardeners gamekeepers and coachmen but not lodge people because their years are too great and their lodges too small and among those to whom this opportunity of entering service came was young bealby who is the stepson of Mr. Darling, the gardener of Shantz. Everyone knows the glories of Shantz, its façade, its two towers, the great marble pond, the terraces where the peacocks walk, and the lower lake with the black and white swans, the great park and the avenue, the view of the river winding away across the blue country, and of the Shantz Velasquez, but that is now in America and the Chance Rubens, which is in the National Gallery, and the Chance Porcelain, and the Chance Past History. It was a refuge for the old faith. It had priest-holes and secret passages, and how at last the Marquis had to let Chance to the Laxtons, the peptonized milk and baby soother people, for a long term of years. It was a splendid chance for any boy to begin his knowledge of service in so great an establishment and only the natural perversity of human nature can explain the violent objection young bealby took to anything of the sort he did he said he did not want to be a servant and that he would not go and be a good boy and try his very best in that state of life to which it had pleased god to call him at chance on the contrary he communicated these views suddenly to his mother as she was preparing a steak and kidney pie in the bright little kitchen of the gardener's cottage he came in with his hair all ruffled and his face hot and distinctly dirty and his hands in his trousers pockets in the way he had been repeatedly told not to mother he said i'm not going to be a steward's boy at the house anyhow not if you tell me to not till you're blue in the face so that's all about it this delivered he remained panting having no further breath left in him his mother was a thin firm woman she paused in her rolling of the dough until he had finished and then she made a strong broadening sweep of the rolling pin and remained facing him leaning forward on that implement with her head a little on one side you will do she said whatsoever your father has said you will do he isn't my father said young bealby his mother gave a snapping nod of the head expressive of extreme determination anyhow i ain't going to do it said young bealby and feeling the conversation was difficult to sustain he moved towards the staircase door with a view to slamming it you'll do it said his mother right enough you see whether i do said young bealby and then got in his door slam rather hurriedly because of steps outside mr darling came in out of the sunshine a few moments later he was a large many-pocketed earthy whiskered man with a clean-shaven determined mouth and he carried a large pale cucumber in his hand 
i told him he said what did he say asked his wife nothing said mr darlin he says he won't says mrs darlin mr darlin regarded her thoughtfully for a moment i never see such a boy said mr darlin why he's got to Subchapter two but young bealby maintained an obstinate fight against the inevitable he had no gift of lucid exposition i ain't going to be a servant he said i don't see what right people have making a servant of me you got to be something said mr darling everybody's got to be something said mrs darling then let me be something else said young bealby i dessay say you'd like to be a gentleman said mr darling i wouldn't mind said young bealby you got to be what your opportunities give you said mr darling young bealby became breathless why shouldn't i be an engine driver he asked all oily said his mother and getting yourself killed in an accident and got to pay fines you'd like to be an engine driver or a soldier oh a swatty said mr darling decisively or the sea with that weak stomach of yours said mrs darling besides which said mr darling it's been arranged for you to go up to the house the very first of next month and your box and everything ready young bealby became very red in the face i won't go he said very faintly you will said mrs darling if i have to take you by the collar and the slack of your breeches to get you there subchapter three the heart of young bealby was a coal of fire within his breast as unassisted he went across the dewy park up to the great house whither his box was to follow him he thought the world a rotten show he also said apparently to two does and a fawn if you think i'm going to stand it you know you're jolly well mistaken i do not attempt to justify his prejudice against honourable usefulness in a domestic capacity he had it perhaps there is something in the air of highbury where he had spent the past eight years of his life that leads to democratic ideals it is one of those new places where estates seem almost forgotten perhaps too there was something in the bilby strain i think he would have objected to any employment at all hitherto he had been a remarkably free boy with a considerable gusto about his freedom why should that end the little village mixed school had been a soft job for his cockney wits and for a year and a half he had been top boy why not go on being top boy instead of which under threats he had to go across the sunlit corner of the park through that slanting morning sunlight which had been so often the prelude to golden days of leafy wanderings he had to go past the corner of the laundry where he had so often played cricket with the coachman's boys already swallowed up into the working world he had to follow the laundry wall to the end of the kitchen and there where the steps go down and underground he had to say farewell to the sunlight farewell to childhood boyhood freedom he had to go down and along the stone corridor to the pantry and there he had to ask for mr mergelson he paused on the top step and looked up at the blue sky across which a hawk was slowly drifting his eyes followed the hawk out of sight beyond a cypress bough but indeed he was not thinking about the hawk he was not seeing the hawk he was struggling with the last wild impulse of his ferial nature why not sling it his ferial nature was asking 
why not even now do a bunk it would have been better for him perhaps and better for mr mergelson and better for chance if he had yielded to the whisper of the tempter but his heart was heavy within him and he had no lunch and never a penny one can do but a very little bunk on an empty belly must was written all over him he went down the steps the passage was long and cool and, and at the end of it was a swing door through that and then to the left he knew one had to go past the still room and so to the pantry the maids were at breakfast in the still room with the door open the grimace he made in passing was intended rather to entertain than to insult and anyhow a chap must do something with his face and then he came to the pantry and into the presence of mr mergelson mr mergelson was in his short sleeves and generally dishevelled having an early cup of tea and an atmosphere full of the bleak memories of overnight he was an ample man with a large nose a vast underlip and mutton-chop side whiskers his voice would have suited a succulent parrot he took out a gold watch from his waistcoat pocket and regarded it ten minutes past seven young man he said isn't seven o'clock young bilby made no articulate answer just stand there for a minute said mr mergelson and when i'm at liberty i'll run through your duties and almost ostentatiously he gave himself up to the enjoyment of his cup of tea three other gentlemen in dishabille sat at table with mr mergelson they regarded young bilby with attention and the youngest a red-haired bare-faced youth in shirt-sleeves and a green apron was moved to a grimace that was clearly designed to echo the scowl on young bilby's features the fury that had been subdued by a momentary awe of mr mergelson revived and gathered force young bilby's face became scarlet his eyes filled with tears and his mind with a need for movement after all he wouldn't stand it he turned round abruptly and made for the door where on earth you going to cried mr mergelson he's shy cried the second footman steady on cried the first footman and had him by the shoulder in the doorway let me go howled the new recruit struggling i won't be a blooming servant i won't here cried mr mergelson gesticulating with his teaspoon bring him to the end of the table there what's this about a blooming servant bilby suddenly blubbering was replaced at the end of the table may i ask what's this about a blooming servant asked mr mergelson sniff in silence did i understand you to say that you ain't to be a blooming servant young bilby yes said young bilby thomas said mr mergelson just smack his head smack it rather ard things too rapid to relate occurred so you'd bite would you said thomas ah said mr mergelson got him that one just smack his head once more said mr mergelson and now you just stand there young man until i'm at liberty to attend to you further said mr mergelson and finish his tea slowly and eloquently the second footman rubbed his shin thoughtfully if i got to smack his head much he said he'd better change into his slippers take him to his room said mr mergelson getting up see he washes the grief and grubbiness off his face in the hand wash at the end of the passage and make him put on his slippers then show him how to lay the table in the steward's room sub chapter four 
the duties to which bilby was introduced struck him as perplexingly various undesirably numerous uninteresting and difficult to remember and also he did not try to remember them very well because he wanted to do them as badly as possible and he thought that forgetting would be a good way of starting at that he was beginning at the bottom of the ladder to him it fell to wait on the upper servants and the green baize door at the top of the service staircase was the limit of his range his room was a small wedge-shaped apartment under some steps leading to the servants hall lit by a window that did not open and they gave upon the underground passage he received its instructions in a state of crumpled mutinyness but for a day his desire to be remarkably impossible was more than counterbalanced by his respect for the large able hands of the four manservants his seniors and by a disclination to be returned too promptly to the gardens then in a tentative manner he broke two plates and got his head smacked by mr murgelson himself mr murgelson gave a staccato slap quite as powerful as thomas's but otherwise different the hand of mr murgelson was large and fat and he got his effects by dash thomas's was horny and lingered after that young bilby put salt in the teapot in which the housekeeper made tea but that he observed she washed out with hot water before she put in the tea it was clear that he had wasted his salt which ought to have gone into the kettle next time the kettle beyond telling him his duties almost excessively nobody conversed with young bilby during the long hours of his first day in service at midday dinner in the servants hall he made one of the kitchen maids giggle by pulling faces and tend to be delicately suggestive of mr murgelson but that was his nearest approach to disinterested human intercourse when the hour for retirement came get out of it go to bed you dirty little kicker said thomas we've had about enough of you for one day young bilby sat for a long time on the edge of his bed weighing the possibilities of arson and poison he wished he had some poison some sort of poison with a medieval manner poison that hurts before it kills also he produced a small penny pocket-book with a glazed black cover and blue edges he headed one page of this murgelson and entered beneath it three black crosses then he opened an account to thomas who was manifestly destined to be his principal creditor bilby was not a forgiving boy at the village school they had been too busy making him a good churchman to attend to things like that there were a lot of crosses for thomas and while bilby made these sinister memoranda downstairs lady laxton for laxton had bought a baronetcy for twenty thousand down to the party funds and a tip to the whip over the peptonized milk flotation lady laxton a couple of floors above bilby's ruffled head mused over her approaching weekend party it was an important weekend party the lord chancellor of england was coming never before had she had so much as a member of the cabinet at chance he was coming and do what she would she could not help but connect it with her very strong desire to see the master of chance in the clear scarlet of a deputy lieutenant peter would look so well in that the lord chancellor was coming and to meet him and to circle about him there were lord john woodenhouse and slinker bond there were the countess of barracks and mrs rampond philby the novelist with her husband rampond 
philby there was professor tambra the philosopher and there were four smaller though quite good people who would run about very satisfactorily among the others at least she thought they would run about very satisfactorily amongst the others not imagining any evil of her cousin captain douglas all this good company and shots fill lady laxton with a pleasant realization of progressive successes but at the same time one must confess that she felt a certain diffidence in her heart of hearts she knew she had not made this party it had happened to her how it might go on happening to her she did not know it was beyond her control she hoped very earnestly that everything would pass off well the lord chancellor was as big a guest as any she had had one must grow as one grows but still being easy and friendly with him would be she knew a tremendous effort rather like being easy and friendly with an elephant she was not good at conversation the task of interesting people taxed her and puzzled her it was slinker bond the whip who had arranged the whole business after it must be confessed a hint from sir peter laxton had complained that the government were neglecting this part of the country they ought to show up more than they do in the county said sir peter and added almost carelessly i could easily put anybody up at shaunt's there were to be two select dinner parties and a large but still select sunday lunch to let in the countryside to the spectacle of the laxtons taking their new proper place at shaunt's it was not only the sense of her deficiencies that troubled lady laxton there were also her husband's excesses he had it was of no use disguising it rather too much the manner of an employer he had a way of getting how could one put it confident at dinner and mergelson seemed to delight in filling up his glass then he would contradict a good deal she felt that lord chancellors however the sort of men one doesn't contradict then the lord chancellor was said to be interested in philosophy a difficult subject she had got tambra to talk to him about that tambra was a professor of philosophy at oxford so that was sure to be all right but she wished she knew one or two good safe things to say in philosophy herself she had long felt the need of a secretary and now she felt it more than ever if she had a secretary she could just tell him what it was she wanted to talk about and he could get her one or two of the right books and mark the best passages and she could learn it all up she feared it was a worrying fear that laxton would say right out and very early in the weekend that he didn't believe in philosophy he had a way of saying he didn't believe in large things like that art philanthropy novels and so on sometimes he said i don't believe in all of this art or whatever it was she had watched people's faces when he had said it and she had come to the conclusion that saying you don't believe in things isn't the sort of thing people say nowadays it was wrong somehow but she did not want to tell laxton directly that it was wrong he would remember if she did but he had a way of taking such things rather badly at the time she hated him to take things badly if one could invent some little hint she whispered to herself she had often wished she was better at hints she was you see a gentlewoman modest kindly her people were quite good people poor of course but she was not clever she was anything but clever 
and the lives of these captains of industry need to be very clever indeed if they are to escape a magnificent social isolation they get the titles and the big places and all that sort of thing people don't at all intend to isolate them but there is nevertheless an inadvertent avoidance even as she uttered these words if one could invent some little hint beobly down there less than forty feet away through the solid floor below her feet and a little to the right was wetting his stump of pencil as wet as he could in order to ensure a sufficiently emphatic fourteenth cross on the score-sheet of the doomed thomas most of the other thirteen marks were done with such hard-breathing emphasis that the print of them went more than halfway through that little blue-edged book subchapter five the arrival of the weekend guests impressed Bealby at first merely as a blessed influence that withdrew the four men-servants into that unknown world on the other side of the green baize door but then he learnt that it also involved the appearance of five new persons two valets and three maids for whom places had to be laid in the steward's room otherwise lady laxton's social arrangements had no more influence upon the mind of bealby than the private affairs of the emperor of china there was something going on up there beyond even his curiosity all he heard of was a distant coming and going of vehicles and some slight talk to which he was inattentive while the coachmen and grooms were having a drink in the pantry till these maids and valets appeared they seemed to him to appear suddenly out of nothing like slugs after rain black and rather shiny sitting about inactively and quietly consuming small matters he disliked them and they regarded him without affection or respect who cared he indicated his feelings towards them as soon as he was out of the steward's room by a gesture of the hand and nose venerable only by reason of its antiquity he had things more urgent to think about than strange valets and maids thomas had laid hands on him jeered at him inflicted shameful indignities on him and he wanted to kill thomas in some frightful manner but if possible unobtrusively if he had been a little japanese boy this would have been an entirely honourable desire it would have been bushito and all that sort of thing in the gardener's stepson however it is undesirable thomas on the other hand having remarked the red light of revenge in bealby's eye and being secretly afraid felt that his honour was concerned in not relaxing his persecutions he called him kicker and when he did not answer to that name he called him snorter bleater snooks and finally tweaked his ear then he saw fit to assume that bealby was deaf and that ear tweaking was the only available method of address this led on to the convention of a sign language whereby ideas were communicated to bealby by means of painful but frequently quite ingeniously symbolical freedoms with various parts of his person also thomas affected to discover uncleanliness in bealby's head and succeeded after many difficulties in putting it in a sinkful of lukewarm water meanwhile young bealby devoted such scanty time as he could give to reflection to debating whether it is better to attack thomas suddenly with a carving knife or throw a lighted lamp the large pantry ink-pot of pewter might be effective in its way he thought but he doubted whether in the event of a charge it had sufficient stopping power 
he was also curiously attracted by a long two-pronged toasting fork that hung at the side of the pantry fireplace it had reach over all these dark thoughts and ill-conceived emotions mr murgelson prevailed large yet speedy speedy yet exact parroting orders and making plump gestures performing duties and seeing that duties were performed matters came to a climax late on saturday night at the end of a trying day just before mr murgelson went round to lock up and turn out the lights thomas came into the pantry close behind bealby who greatly belated through his own inefficiency was carrying a tray of glasses from the steward's room applied an ungentle hand to his neck and ruffled up his back hair in a smart and painful manner at the same time thomas remarked brr bealby stood still for a moment and then put down his tray on the table and making peculiar sounds as he did so resorted very rapidly to the toasting fork he got a prong into thomas's chin at the first prod how swift are the changes of the human soul at the moment of his thrust young bealby was a primordial savage so soon as he saw this incredible piercing of thomas's chin for all the care that bealby had taken it might just as well have been thomas's eye he moved swiftly through the ages and became a simple christian child he abandoned violence and fled the fork hung for a moment from the visage of thomas like a twisted beard of brass and then rattled on the ground thomas clapped his hand to his chin and discovered blood you little he never found the right word which perhaps is just as well instead he started in pursuit of bealby bealby in his sudden horror of his own act and thomas fled headlong into the passage and made straight for the service stairs that went up into a higher world he had little time to think thomas with a red smeared chin appeared in pursuit thomas the avenger thomas really roused bealby shot through the green baize door and the pursuing footman pulled up only just in time not to follow him only just in time he had an instinctive instant anxious fear of great dangers he heard something a sound as though the young of some very large animal had squeaked feebly he had a glimpse of something black and white enlarged then something some glass thing smashed he steadied the green baize door which was wobbling on its brass hinges controlled his panting breath and listened a low rich voice was ejaculating it was not bealby's voice it was the voice of some substantial person being quietly but deeply angry there were the ejaculations restrained in tone but not in quality of a ripe and well-stored mind no boy's thin stuff then very softly thomas pushed open the door just widely enough to see and as instantly let it fall back into place very gently and yet with an alert rapidity he turned around and stole down the service stairs his superior officer appeared in the passage below mr murgelson he cried i say mr murgelson what's up said mr murgelson he's gone who eelby home this almost hopefully no where up there i think he ran against somebody mr murgelson scrutinized his subordinate's face for a second then he listened intently both men listened intently have to fetch him out of that said mr murgelson suddenly preparing for brisk activity 
thomas bent lower over the banisters the lord chancellor he whispered with white lips and a sideways gesture of his head what about him said murgelson arrested by something in the manner of thomas thomas's whisper became so fine that mr murgelson drew nearer to catch it and put up a hand to his ear thomas repeated the last remark he's just through there on the landing cursing and swearing horrible things more like a mad turkey than a human being where's bealby he must have run into him said thomas after consideration but now where is he thomas pantomimed infinite perplexity mr murgelson reflected and sided upon his line he came up the service staircase lifted his chin and with an air of meek officiousness went through the green door there was no one now on the landing there was nothing remarkable on the landing except a broken tumbler but halfway up the grand staircase stood the lord chancellor under one arm the great jurist carried a soda-water siphon and he grasped a decanter of whisky in his hand he turned sharply at the sound of the green baize door and bent upon mr murgelson the most terrible eyebrows that ever surely adorned a legal visage he was very red in the face and savage-looking was it you he said with a threatening gesture of the decanter and his voice betrayed a noble indignation was it you who slapped me behind slapped you behind me lord slap me behind don't i speak plainly i such a liberty me lord idiot i ask you a plain question with almost inconceivable alacrity mr murgelson rushed up three steps leaped forward and caught the siphon as it slipped from the lordship's arm he caught it but at a price he overset and clasping it in his hands struck his lordship first with the siphon on the left shin and then butted him with a face that was still earnestly respectful in the knees his lordship's legs were driven sideways so that they were no longer beneath his centre of gravity with a monosyllabic remark of a typographical nature his lordship collapsed upon mr murgelson the decanter flew out of his grasp and smashed presently with emphasis upon the landing below the siphon escaping from the wreckage of mr murgelson and drawn no doubt by a natural affinity rolled noisily from step to step in pursuit of the decanter it was a curious little procession that hurried down the great staircase of chance that night first the whisky like a winged harbinger with a pedestrian siphon in pursuit then the great lawyer gripping the great butler by the tails of his coat and punching furiously then mr murgelson trying wildly to be respectful even in disaster first the lord chancellor dived over mr murgelson grappling as he passed then mr murgelson attempting explanations was pulled backwards over the lord chancellor then again the lord chancellor was for a giddy but vindictive moment uppermost a second rotation and they reached the landing bang there was a deafening report end of chapter one Chapter Two of Bealby, A Holiday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.
Bealby, A Holiday, by H. G. Wells. Chapter 2 A Weekend at Chance. Subchapter 1 The weekend visit is a form of entertainment peculiar to Great Britain. It is a thing that could have been possible only in a land essentially aristocratic and mellow, in which even the observance of the Sabbath has become mellow. At every London terminus on a Saturday afternoon, the outgoing trains have an unusually large proportion of first-class carriages and a peculiar abundance of rich-looking dressing bags provoke the covetous eye. A discreet activity of valets and maids mingles with the stimulated alertness of the porters. One marks celebrities in gay raiment. There is an indefinable air of distinction upon platform and bookstall. Sometimes there are carriages reserved for especially privileged parties. There are greetings. And so you are coming too. No, this time it is Chance, the place where they found the Rubens. Who has it now? Through this cheerfully prosperous throng went the Lord Chancellor with his high nose, those eyebrows of his which he seemed to be able to furl or unfurl at will, and his expression of tranquil self-sufficiency. He was going to Chance for his party and not for his pleasure, but there was no reason why that should appear upon his face. He went along preoccupied, pretending to see nobody, leaving to others the disadvantage of the greeting. In his right hand he carried a small, important bag of leather. Under his left arm he bore a philosophical work by Dr. McTaggart, three illustrated papers, the Fortnightly Review, the Day's Times, the Hibbert Journal, Punch, and two blue books. His lordship never quite knew the limits set to what he could carry under his arm. His man, Candler, followed, therefore, at a suitable distance with several papers that had already been dropped, alert to retrieve any further losses. At the large bookstall they passed close by Mrs. Rampound Pilby, who, according to her custom, was feigning to be a member of the general public and was asking the clerk about her last book. The Lord Chancellor saw Rampound Bilby hovering at hand and deftly failed to catch his eye. He loathed the Rampound Pilbys. He speculated for a moment what sort of people could possibly stand Mrs. Pilby's vast pretensions, even from Saturday to Monday. One dinner party on her right hand had glutted him for life. He chose a corner seat, took possession of both it and the seat opposite it in order to have somewhere to put his feet, left Candler to watch over and pack in his hand luggage, and went high up the platform, remaining there with his back to the world, rather like a bigger, more aquiline Napoleon, in order to evade the great novelist. 
In this, he was completely successful. He returned, however, to find Candler on the verge of a personal conflict with a very fair young man in gray. He was so fair as to be almost an albino, except that his eyes were quick and brown. He was blushing the brightest pink and speaking very quickly. These two places, said Candler, breathless with the badness of his case, are engaged. All the very well, said the very fair young man with his eyebrows and mustache looking very pale by contrast. Have it so, but do permit me to occupy the middle seat of the carriage with a residuary interest in the semi-gentleman's place. You little know, young man, whom you are calling a semi-gentleman, said Candler, whose speciality was grammar. Here he is, said the young gentleman. Which place will you have, my lord? asked Candler, abandoning his case altogether. Facing, said the Lord Chancellor, slowly unfurling the eyebrows and scowling at the young man in grey. Then I'll have the other, said the very fair young man, talking very glibly. He spoke with a quick, low voice, like one who forces himself to keep going. You see, he said, addressing the great jurist with the extreme familiarity of the courageously nervous. I've gone into this sort of thing before. First, mind you, I have a far look for a vacant corner. I'm not the sort to spoil sport, but if there isn't a vacant corner, I look for traces of a semi-gentleman. A semi-gentleman is one who has a soft cap and not an umbrella. His friend in the opposite seat has the umbrella, or he has an umbrella and not a soft cap, or a waterproof and not a bag, or a bag and not a waterproof, and a half-interest in a rug. That's what I call a semi-gentleman. You see the idea? Sort of divided beggar. Nothing in any way offensive. Sir, said the Lord Chancellor, interrupting in a voice of concentrated passion, I don't care a rap what you call a semi-gentleman. Will you get out of my way? Just as you please, said the very fair young gentleman, and going a few paces from the carriage door, he whistled for the boy with the papers. He was bearing up bravely. Pinkin, said the very fair young gentleman, almost breathlessly. Black and white? What's all these others? Athenaeum? Sporting and dramatic? Right-ho, and a? What? Do I look the sort that buys a spectator? You don't know, my dear boy? Where's your savoir-faire? Subchapter 2 The Lord Chancellor was a philosopher, and not easily perturbed. His severe manner was consciously assumed, and never much more than skin-deep. He had already furled his eyebrows and dismissed his vis-a-vis -vis from his mind before the train started. 
He turned over the Hibbert Journal and read in it with a large tolerance. Dimly, on the outskirts of his consciousness, the very fair young man hovered, as a trifling annoyance, as something pink and hot rustling a sheet of a discordant shade of pink, as something that got in the way of his legs and whistled softly some trivial, cheerful air, just to show how little it cared. Presently, very soon, this vague trouble would pass out of his consciousness altogether. The Lord Chancellor was no mere amateur of philosophy. His activities in that direction were a part of his public reputation. He lectured on religion and aesthetics. He was a fluent Hegelian. He spent his holidays, it was understood, in the absolute, at any rate, in Germany. He would sometimes break into philosophy at dinner tables, and particularly over the dessert, and be more luminously incomprehensible while still apparently sober than almost anyone. An article in the Hibbert caught and held his attention. It attempted to define a new and doubtful variety of infinity. You know, of course, that there are many sorts and species of infinity, and that the absolute is just the king among infinities as the lion is king among the beasts. I say, said a voice coming out of the world of relativity and coughing the cough of those who break a silence, you aren't going to shunt, are you? The Lord Chancellor returned slowly to earth. Just seen your label, said the very fair young man. You see, I'm going to shunt. The Lord Chancellor remained outwardly serene. He reflected for a moment, and then he fell into that snare which is more fatal to great lawyers and judges, perhaps, than to any other class of men. The snare of the crushing repartee. One had come into his head now, a beauty. Then we shall meet there, he said in his suavest manner. Well, rather... It would be a great pity, said the Lord Chancellor, with an effect of blandness, using a kind of wry smile that he employed to make things humorous. It would be a great pity, don't you think, to anticipate that pleasure. And having smiled the retort well home with his head a little on one side, he resumed with large leisurely movements the reading of his Hibbert journal. Got me there, said the very fair young man belatedly, looking boiled to a turn, and after a period of restlessness settled down to an impatient perusal of black and white. There's a whole blessed weekend, of course, the young man remarked presently, without looking up from his paper and apparently pursuing some obscure meditations. A vague uneasiness crept into the Lord Chancellor's mind as he continued to appear to peruse. Out of what train of thought could such a remark arise? His weakness for crushing retort had a little betrayed him. It was, however, only when he found himself upon the platform of Chelsea, 
which, as everyone knows, is the station for Shant, and discovered Mr. and Mrs. Rampound Pilby upon the platform, looking extraordinarily like a national monument and its custodian, that the Lord Chancellor began to realize that he was in the grip of fate, and that the service he was doing his party by weekending with the Laxtons was likely to be not simply joyless, but disagreeable. Well, anyhow, he had McTaggart, and he could always work in his own room. Subchapter 3 By the end of dinner, the Lord Chancellor was almost at the end of his large but clumsy endurance. He kept his eyebrows furled only by the most strenuous relaxation of his muscles, and within he was a sea of silent blasphemes. All sorts of little things had accumulated. He exercised an unusual temperance with the port and old brandy his host pressed upon him, feeling that he dared not relax, lest his rage had its way with him. The cigars were quite intelligent at any rate, and he smoked and listened with a faintly perceptible disdain to the conversation of the other men. At any rate, Mrs. Rampound Pilby was out of the room. The talk had arisen out of a duologue that had preceded the departure of the ladies, a duologue of timbers, about apparitions and the reality of the future life. Sir Peter Laxton, released from the eyes of his wife, was at liberty to say he did not believe in all this stuff. It was just thought transference and fancy and all that sort of thing. His declaration did not arrest the flow of feeble instances and experiences into which such talk invariably degenerate. His lordship remained carelessly attentive his eyebrows unfurled but drooping, his cigar upward at an acute angle. He contributed no anecdotes, content now and then to express himself compactly by some brief sentence of pure Hegelian, much as Mahometan might spit. Why, come to that, they say Chance is haunted, said Sir Peter. I suppose we could have a ghost here in no time if I chose to take it on. Rare place for a ghost, too. The very fair young man of the train had got a name now, and was Captain Douglas. When he was not blushing too brightly, he was rather good-looking. He was a distant cousin of Lady Laxton's. He impressed the Lord Chancellor as unabashed. He engaged people in conversation with a cheerful familiarity that excluded only the Lord Chancellor, and even at the Lord Chancellor he looked ever and again. He pricked up his ears at the mention of ghosts, and afterwards, when the Lord Chancellor came to think things over, it seemed to him that he had caught a curious glance of the captain's bright little brown eye. What sort of ghost, Sir Peter? Chains? Eh? No? Nothing of that sort, it seems, 
I don't know much about it. I wasn't sufficiently interested. No sort of spook that bangs about and does you a mischief. What's its name? Thundergeist? Poltergeist, the Lord Chancellor supplied carelessly in the pause. Runs its hand over your hair in the dark. Taps your shoulder. All nonsense. But we don't tell the servants. Sort of thing I don't believe in. Easily explained. What with paneling and secret passages and priest's holds and all that. Priest's holds? Douglas was excited. Where they hid? Perfect rabbit warren. There's one going out from the drawing room alcove. Quite a good room in its way. But you know, a note of wrath crept into Sir Peter's voice. They didn't treat me fairly about these priest's holes. I ought to have had a sketch and a plan of these priest's holes. When a chap is given possession of a place, he ought to be given possession. Well, I don't know where half of them are myself. That's not possession. Else we might refurnish them and do them up a bit. I guess they're pretty musty. Captain Douglas spoke with his eye on the Lord Chancellor. Sure there isn't a murdered priest in the place, Sir Peter? He asked. Nothing of the sort, said Sir Peter. I don't believe in these priest's holes. Half of them never had priests in them. It's all pretty tidy rot, I expect, come to the bottom of it. The conversation did not get away from ghosts and secret passages until the men went to the drawing room. If it seemed likely to do so, Captain Douglas pulled it back. He seemed to delight in these silly particulars. The sillier they were, the more he was delighted. The Lord Chancellor was a little preoccupied by one of those irrational suspicions that will sometimes afflict the most intelligent of men. Why did Douglas want to know all the particulars about the Chant's ghosts? Why every now and then did he glance with that odd expression at one's face, a glance half appealing and half amused? Amused! It was a strange fancy, but the Lord Chancellor could almost have sworn that the young man was laughing at him. At dinner he had had that feeling one has at times of being talked about. He had glanced along the table to discover the captain and a rather plain woman. That idiot Timber's wife, she probably was, with their heads together looking up at him quite definitely and both manifestly pleased by something Douglas was telling her. What was it Douglas had said in the train? Something like a threat? But the exact words had slipped the Lord Chancellor's memory. The Lord Chancellor's preoccupation was just sufficient to make him a little unwary. He drifted into grappling distance of Mrs. Rampound Pilby. Her voice caught him like a lasso and drew him in. Well, and how is Lord Moggeridge now? she asked. What on earth is one to say to such an impertinence? She was always like that. 
she spoke to a man of the caliber of Lord Bacon as though she was speaking to a schoolboy home for the holidays. She had an invincible air of knowing all through everybody. It gave rather confidence to her work than charm to her manner. Do you still go on with your philosophy, she said. No, shouted the Lord Chancellor, losing all self-control for the moment and waving his eyebrows about madly. No, I go off with it. For your vacations? Eh, Lord Moggeridge? How I envy you great lawyers your long vacations. I never get a vacation. Always we poor authors are pursued by our creations. Sometimes it's typescript, sometimes it's proofs. Not that I really complain of proofs. I confess to a weakness for proofs. Sometimes, alas, it's criticism. Such undiscerning criticism. The Lord Chancellor began to think very swiftly of some tremendous lie that would enable him to escape at once without incivility from Lady Laxton's drawing-room. Then he perceived that Mrs. Rampound Pilby was asking him, Is that the Captain Douglas, or his brother, who's in love with the actress-woman? The Lord Chancellor made no answer. What he thought was, Great silly idiot, how should I know? I think it must be the one, the one who had to leave Portsmouth in disgrace because of the raging scandal. He did nothing there, they say, but organized practical jokes. Some of them were quite subtle practical jokes. He's a cousin of our hostess. That perhaps accounts for his presence. The Lord Chancellor's comment betrayed the drift of his thoughts. He'd better not try that sort of thing on here, he said. I abominate clowning. Drawing room did not last very long. Even Lady Laxton could not miss the manifest gloom of her principal guest. And after the good nights and barley water and lemonade on the great landing, Sir Peter led Lord Marguerite by the arm—he hated being led by the arm—into the small but still spacious apartment that was called the study. The Lord Chancellor was now very thirsty. He was not used to abstinence of any sort, but Sir Peter's way of suggesting a drink roused such a fury of resentment in him that he refused tersely and conclusively. There was nobody else in the study but Captain Douglas, who seemed to hesitate upon the verge of some familiar address, and Lord Woodenhouse, who was thirsty too, and held a vast tumbler of whiskey and soda, with a tinkle of ice in it, on his knee, in a way annoying to a parched man. The Lord Chancellor helped himself to a cigar, and assumed the middle of the fireplace with an air of contentment but he could feel the self-control running out of the heels of his boots. Sir Peter, after a quite unsuccessful invasion of his own hearthrug, the Lord Chancellor stood like a rock, secured the big armchair, 
stuck his feet out towards his distinguished guest and resumed a talk that he had been holding with Lord Woodenhouse about firearms. Mergelson had, as usual, been too attentive to his master's glass, and the fine edge was off Sir Peter's deference. I always have carried firearms, he said, and I always shall. Used properly, they are a great protection, even in the country. How are you to know who you're going to run up against anywhere? But you might shoot and hit something, said Douglas. Properly used. I said properly used. Whipping out a revolver and shooting at a man. That's not properly used. Almost as bad as pointing it at him which is pretty certain to make him fly straight at you if he's got an ounce of pluck. But I said properly used, and I mean properly used. The Lord Chancellor tried to think about that article on infinities, while appearing to listen to this fool's talk. He despised revolvers. Armed with such eyebrows as his, it was natural for him to despise revolvers. Now I've got some nice little barkers upstairs, said Sir Peter. I'd almost welcome a burglar, just to try them. If you shoot a burglar, said Lord Woodenhouse, abruptly with a gust of that ill temper that was frequent at Chance towards bedtime, when he's not attacking you, it's murder. Sir Peter held up an offensively pacifying hand. I know that, he said. You needn't tell me that. He raised his voice a little to increase his already excessive accentuations. I said properly used. A yawn took the Lord Chancellor unawares, and he caught it dexterously with his hand. Then he saw Douglas hastily pull at his little blonde mustache to conceal a smile. Grinning ape. What was there to smile at? The man had been smiling all the evening. Up to something? Now let me tell you, said Sir Peter, let me tell you the proper way to use a revolver. You whip it out and instantly let fly at the ground. You should never let anyone see a revolver ever before they hear it, see? You let fly at the ground first off, and the concussion stuns them. It doesn't stun you. You expect it. They don't. See? There you are. Five shots left. Master of the situation. I think, Sir Peter, I'll bid you good night, said the Lord Chancellor, allowing his eye to rest for one covetous moment on the decanter and struggling with the devil of pride. Sir Peter made a gesture of extreme friendliness from his chair, expressive of the Lord Chancellor's freedom to do whatever he pleased at Chance. I may perhaps tell you a little story that happened once in Morocco. My eyes won't keep open any longer, said Captain Douglas suddenly, with a whirl of his knuckles into his sockets, and stood up. Lord Woodenhouse stood up, too. You see, said Sir Peter, 
standing also but sticking to his subject and his hearer, this was when I was younger than I am now. You must understand, and I wasn't married, just mooching about a bit between business and pleasure. Under such circumstances, one goes into parts of a foreign town where one wouldn't go if one was older and wiser. Captain Douglas left Sir Peter and Woodenhouse to it. He emerged on the landing and selected one of the lighted candlesticks upon the table. Lord, he whispers. He grimaced in soliloquy and then perceived the Lord Chancellor regarding him with suspicion and disfavor from the ascending staircase. He attempted ease. For the first time since the train incident, he addressed Lord Moggeridge. I gather, my lord, don't believe in ghosts, he said. No, sir, said the Lord Chancellor, I don't. They won't trouble me tonight. They won't trouble any of us. Fine old house anyhow, said Captain Douglas. The Lord Chancellor disdained to reply. He went on his way upstairs. Subchapter 4 When the Lord Chancellor sat down before the thoughtful fire in the fine old paneled room assigned to him, he perceived that he was too disturbed to sleep. This was going to be an infernal weekend, the worst weekend he had ever had. Mrs. Rampound Pilby maddened him. Timber, who was a pragmatist, which stands in the same relation to a Hegelian that a small dog does to a large cat, exasperated him. He loathed Laxton, detested Rampound Pilby, and feared, as far as he was capable of fearing anything, Captain Douglas. There was no refuge, no soul in the house to whom he could turn for consolation and protection from these others. Slinker Bond could talk only of the affairs of the party, and the Lord Chancellor, being Lord Chancellor, had long since lost any interest in the affairs of the party. Woodenhouse could talk of nothing. The women were astonishingly negligible. There were practically no pretty women. There ought always to be pretty young women for a Lord Chancellor. Pretty young women who can at least seem to listen. And he was atrociously thirsty. His room was supplied only with water, stuff you use to clean your teeth, and nothing else. No good thinking about it. He decided that the best thing he could do to compose himself before turning in would be to sit down at the writing table and write a few sheets of Hegelian about that infinity article in the Hibbert. There is indeed no better consolation for a troubled mind than the Hegelian exercises. They lift it above everything. He took off his coat and sat down to this beautiful amusement, but he had scarcely written a page before his thirst became a torment. 
He kept thinking of that great tumbler wooden house it held, sparkling, golden, cool, and stimulating. What he wanted was a good stiff whiskey and a cigar, one of Laxton's cigars, the only good thing in his entertainment so far. And then philosophy. Even as a student, he had been a worker of the Teutonic type, never abstemious. He thought of ringing and demanding these comforts, and then it occurred to him that it was a little late to ring for things. Why not fetch them from the study himself? He opened his door and looked out upon the great staircase. It was a fine piece of work, that staircase, low, broad, dignified. There seemed to be nobody about. The lights were still on. He listened for a little while, and then put on his coat and went with a soft swiftness that was still quite dignified downstairs to the study, the study redolent of Sir Peter. He made his modest collection. Lord Margaridge came nearer to satisfaction as he emerged from the study that night at Chantz than at any other moment during this ill-advised weekend. In his pocket were four thoroughly good cigars. In one hand he held a cut-glass decanter of whiskey. In the other a capacious tumbler. Under his arm, with that confidence in the unlimited portative power of his arm that nothing could shake, he had tucked the siphon. His soul rested upon the edge of tranquillity, like a bird that has escaped the fowler. He was already composing his next sentence about that new variety of infinity. Then something struck him from behind and impelled him forward a couple of paces. It was something hairy, something in the nature, he thought afterwards, of a worn broom. And also there were two other things, softer and a little higher on each side. Then it was he made that noise like the young of some large animal. He dropped the glass in a hasty attempt to save the siphon. What in the name of heaven, he cried, and found himself alone. Captain Douglas, the thought leapt to his mind. But indeed, it was not Captain Douglas. It was Bealby. Bealby in panic flight from Thomas. And how was Bealby to know that this large, richly laden man was the Lord Chancellor of England? Never before had Bilby seen anyone in evening dress except a butler, and so he supposed this was just some larger, finer kind of butler that they kept upstairs. Some larger, finer kind of butler blocking the path of escape. Bilby had taken in the situation with the rapidity of a hunted animal. The massive form blocked the door to the left. In the playground of the village school, Bilby had been preeminent for his dodging. He moved as quickly as a lizard, his little hands, his head poised with the skill of a practiced butter, came against that mighty back, and then Bilby had dodged into the study. But it seemed to Lord Muggeridge, 
staggering over his broken glass and circling about defensively, that this fearful indignity could come only from Captain Douglas. Foolery. Blub, blub. Sham poltergeist. Imbeciles. He said as much, believing that this young man and possibly confederates were within hearing. He said as much, hotly. He went on to remark of an unphilosophical tendency about Captain Douglas generally, and about army officers, practical joking, Laxton's hospitalities, Shaunt's. Thomas, you will remember, heard him. Nothing came of it. No answer. Not a word of apology. At last, in a great dudgeon, and with a kind of wariness about his back, the Lord Chancellor, with things more spoilt for him than ever, went on his way upstairs. When the green baize door opened behind him, he turned like a shot, and a large, foolish-faced butler appeared. Lord Moggeridge, with a scepter-like motion of the decanter, very quietly and firmly asked him a simple question, and then, then the lunatic must needs leap up three stairs and dive suddenly and upsettingly at his legs. Lord Moggeridge was paralyzed with amazement. His legs were struck from under him. He uttered one brief topographical cry. To Sir Peter, unfortunately, it sounded like, Help! For a few seconds, the impressions that rushed upon Lord Margaridge were too rapid for adequate examination. He had a compelling fancy to kill butlers. Things culminated in a pistol shot, and then he found himself sitting on the landing beside a disgracefully disheveled manservant, and his host was running downstairs to them with a revolver in his hand. On occasion, Lord Margaridge could produce a tremendous voice. He did so now. For a moment he stared, panting at Sir Peter, and then, emphasized by a pointing finger, came the voice. Never had it been so charged with emotion. What does this mean, you, sir? he shouted. What does this mean? It was exactly what Sir Peter had intended to say. Subchapter 5 Explanations are detestable things, and anyhow it isn't right to address your host as you, sir. Subchapter 6 Throughout the evening the persuasion had grown in Lady Laxton's mind that all was not going well with the Lord Chancellor. It was impossible to believe he was enjoying himself, but she did not know how to give things a turn for the better. Clever women would have known, but she was so convinced she was not clever that she did not even try. Thing after thing had gone wrong. How was she to know that there were two sorts of philosophy, quite different? She had thought philosophy was philosophy but it seemed that there were these two sorts, if not more, 
a round, large sort that talked about the absolute and was scornfully superior and rather irascible, and a jabby-pointed sort that called people tender or tough and was generally much too familiar. To bring them together was just mixing trouble. There ought to be little books for hostesses explaining these things. Then it was extraordinary that the Lord Chancellor, who was so tremendously large and clever, wouldn't go and talk to Mrs. Rampound Pilby, who was also so tremendously large and clever. Repeatedly, Lady Laxton had tried to get them into touch with one another, until at last the Lord Chancellor had said distinctly and deliberately, when she had suggested his going across to the eminent writer, God forbid. Her dream of a large, clever duologue that she could afterwards recall with pleasure was altogether shattered. She thought the Lord Chancellor uncommonly hard to please. These weren't the only people for him. Why couldn't he chat party secrets with Slinker Bond, or say things to Lord Woodenhouse? You could say anything you liked to Lord Woodenhouse, or talk with Mr. Timber. Mrs. Timber had given him an excellent opening. She had asked, Wasn't it a dreadful anxiety always to have the great seal to mind? He had simply grunted. And then why did he keep on looking so dangerously at Captain Douglas? Perhaps tomorrow things would take a turn for the better. One can at least be hopeful. Even if one is not clever, one can be that. From such thoughts as these, it was that this unhappy hostess was roused by a sound of smashing glass, a rumpus, and a pistol shot. She stood up. She laid her hand on her heart. She said, Oh, and gripped her dressing table for support. After a long time, and when it seemed that it was now nothing more than a hubbub of voices in which her husband's could be distinguished clearly, she crept out very softly upon the upper landing. She perceived her cousin, Captain Douglas, looking extremely fair and frail and untrustworthy in a much too gorgeous kimono dressing gown of embroidered Japanese silk. I can assure you, my lord, he was saying in a strange, high-pitched, deliberate voice, on my word of honor as a soldier, that I know absolutely nothing about it. Sure it wasn't all imagination, my lord? Sir Peter asked with his inevitable infelicity. She decided to lean over the balustrading and ask very quietly and clearly, Lord Margaridge, please. Is anything the matter? Subchapter 7 All human beings are egotists, but there is no egotism to compare with the egotism of the very young. Bealby was so much the center of his world that he was incapable of any interpretation of this shouting and uproar. 
this smashing of decanters and firing of pistol shots, except in reference to himself. He supposed it to be a hue and cry. He supposed that he was being hunted, hunted by a pack of great butlers, hounded on by the irreparably injured Thomas. The thought of upstairs gentlefolks passed quite out of his mind. He snatched up a faked Syrian dagger that lay, in the capacity of a paper knife, on the study table, concealed himself under the chintz valance of a sofa, adjusted its rumpled skirts neatly, and awaited the issue of events. For a time, events did not issue. They remained talking noisily upon the great staircase. Bilby could not hear what was said, but most of what was said appeared to be flat contradiction. Perchance, whispered Bilby to himself, gathering courage, perchance we have eluded them. A breathing space. At last a woman's voice mingled with the others and seemed a little to assuage them. Then it seemed to Bilby that they were dispersing to beat the house for him. Good night, again, then, said someone. That puzzled him, but he decided it was a blind. He remained very, very still. He heard a clicking in the apartment, the blue parlor it was called, between the study and the dining room. Electric light? Then someone came into the study. Bealby's eye was as close to the ground as he could get it. He was breathless. He moved his head with an immense circumspection. The valance was translucent, but not transparent. Below it there was a crack of vision, a strip of carpet, the casters of chairs. Among these things he perceived feet, not ankles. It did not go up to that but just feet, large, flattish feet, a pair. They stood still, and Bealby's hand lighted on the hilt of his dagger. The person above the feet seemed to be surveying the room or reflecting. Drunk. Old fool's either drunk or mad. That's about the truth of it, said a voice. Mergelson. Angry but parody and unmistakable. The feet went across to the table, and there were faint sounds of refreshment, discreetly administered, then a moment of profound stillness. Ah, said the voice at last, a voice renewed. Then the feet went to the passage door, halted in the doorway. There was a double click. The lights went out. Bealby was in absolute darkness. Then a distant door closed, and silence followed upon the dark. Mr. Mergelson descended to a pantry ablaze with curiosity. The Lord Chancellor's going dotty, said Mr. Mergelson, replying to the inevitable question, that's what's up. I tried to save the blessed siphon, said Mr. Mergelson pursuing his narrative, and he sprang on me like a leopard. I suppose he thought I wanted to take it away from him. He'd broke a glass already. 
Oh, I don't know. There it was, lying on the landing. Here's where he bit my hand, said Mr. Mergelson. A curious little side issue occurred to Thomas. Where's young Kicker all this time, he asked. Lord, said Mr. Mergelson, all them other things, they clean drove him out of my head. I suppose he's up there, hiding somewhere. He paused. His eye consulted the eye of Thomas. He's got behind a curtain or something, said Mr. Mergelson. Where, where he can have got to, said Mr. Mergelson. Can't be bothered about him, said Mr. Mergelson. I expect he'll sneak down to his room when things are quiet, said Thomas, after reflection. No good going and looking for him now, said Mr. Mergelson. Things upstairs, they got to settle down. But in the small hours, Mr. Mergelson awakened and thought of Bealby and wondered whether he was in bed. This became so great an uneasiness that about the hour of dawn he got up and went along the passage to Bealby's compartment. Bealby was not there, and his bed had not been slept in. That sinister sense of gathering misfortunes, which comes to all of us at times in the small hours, was so strong in the mind of Mr. Merleson that he went on and told Thomas of this disconcerting fact. Thomas woke with difficulty, and rather crossly, but sat up at last, alive to the gravity of Mr. Merleson's mood. If he's found hiding about upstairs after all this upset, said Mr. Mergelson, and left the rest of the sentence to a sympathetic imagination. Now it's light, said Mr. Mergelson, after a slight pause. I think we'd better just go round and have a look for him, both of us. So Thomas clad himself provisionally, and the two manservants went upstairs very softly and began a series of furtive sweeping movements very much in the spirit of Lord Kitchener's historical sweeping movements in the Transvaal, through the stately old rooms in which Bealby must be lurking. Subchapter 8 Man is the most restless of animals. There is an incessant urgency in his nature. He never knows when he is well off. And so it was that Bealby's comparative security under the sofa became presently too irksome to be endured. He seemed to himself to stay there for ages, but as a matter of fact, he stayed there only twenty minutes. Then, with eyes tempered to the darkness, he first struck out an alert, attentive head, then crept out and remained for the space of half a minute on all fours surveying the indistinct blackness about him. Then he knelt up, then he stood up. Then, with arms extended and cautious steps, he began an exploration of the apartment. The passion for exploration grows with what it feeds upon. Presently, Bealby was feeling his way into the blue parlor, and then round by its shuttered and curtained windows to the dining room. 
His head was now full of the idea of some shelter more permanent, less pervious to housemaids, than that sofa. He knew enough now of domestic routines to know that upstairs in the early morning was much routed by housemaids. He found many perplexing turns and corners, and finally got into the dining room fireplace where it was very dark and kicked against some fire irons. That made his heart beat fast for a time. Then, groping on past it, he found in the darkness what few people could have found in the day, the stud that released the panel that hid the opening of the way that led to the priest hole. He felt the thing open, and halted perplexed. In that corner there wasn't a ray of light. For a long time he was trying to think what this opening could be, and then he concluded it was some sort of back way from downstairs. Well, anyhow, it was all exploring. With an extreme gingerliness he got himself through the panel. He closed it almost completely behind him. Careful investigation brought him to the view that he was in a narrow passage of brick or stone that came in a score of paces to a spiral staircase, going both up and down. Up this he went, and presently breathed cool night air, and had a glimpse of stars through a narrow slit-like window, almost blocked by ivy. Then, what was very disagreeable, something scampered. When Bilby's heart recovered, he went on up again. He came to the priest hole, a capacious cell, six feet square, with a bench bed and a little table and chair. It had a small door upon the stairs that was open and a niche cupboard. Here he remained for a time. Then restlessness made him explore a cramped passage. He had to crawl along it for some yards. That came presently into a curious space with wood on one side and stone on the other. Then ahead, most blessed thing, he saw light. He went blundering toward it and then stopped appalled. From the other side of this wooden wall to the right of him had come a voice. Come in, said the voice a rich masculine voice that seemed scarcely two yards away. Bilby became rigid. Then, after a long interval, he moved as softly as he could. The voice soliloquized. Bilby listened intently, and then, when all was still, again crept forward two paces more towards the gleam. It was a peephole. The unseen speaker was walking about. Bilby listened, and the sound of his beating heart mingled with the pad-pad of slippered footsteps. Then, with a brilliant effort, his eye was at the chink. All was still again. For a time he was perplexed by what he saw, a large pink shining dome against a deep greenish-gray background. At the base of the dome was a kind of interrupted hedge, brown and leafless. Then he realized that he was looking at the top of a head 
and two enormous eyebrows. The rest was hidden. Nature surprised Bilby into a penetrating sniff. Now, said the occupant of the room, and suddenly he was standing up. Bilby saw a long hairy neck sticking out of a dressing gown and walking to the side of the room. I won't stand it, said the great voice. I won't stand it. Apes foolery. Then the Lord Chancellor began rapping at the paneling about his apartment. Hollow. It all sounds hollow. Only after a long interval did he resume his writing. All night long that rat behind the wainscot troubled the Lord Chancellor. Whenever he spoke, whenever he moved about, it was still. Whenever he composed himself to write, it began to rustle and blunder. Again and again it sniffed, an annoying kind of sniff. At last the Lord Chancellor gave up his philosophical relaxation and went to bed, turned out the lights, and attempted sleep. But this only intensified his sense of an uneasy, sniffing presence close to him. When the light was out, it seemed to him that this thing, whatever it was, instantly came into the room and set the floor creaking and snapping a thing perpetually attempting something, and perpetually thwarted. The Lord Chancellor did not sleep a wink. The first feeble infiltration of day found him sitting up in bed, wearily wrathful. And now surely someone was going along the passage outside. A great desire to hurt somebody very much seized upon the Lord Chancellor. Perhaps he might hurt that dismal farcer upon the landing. No doubt it was Douglas sneaking back to his own room after the night's efforts. The Lord Chancellor slipped on his dressing gown of purple silk. Very softly indeed did he open his bedroom door and very warily peep out. He heard the soft pad of feet upon the staircase. He crept across the broad passage to the beautiful old balustrading. Down below he saw Mergelson, Mergelson again, in a shameful dishabille, going like a snake, like a slinking cat, like an assassin, into the door of the study. Rage filled the great man's soul. Gathering up the skirts of his dressing gown, he started in a swift yet noiseless pursuit. He followed Mergelson through the little parlor and into the dining room, and then he saw it all. There was a panel open, and Mergelson, very cautiously, going in. Of course! They had got at him through the priest hole. They had been playing on his nerves. All night they had been doing it, no doubt in relays. The whole house was in this conspiracy. With his eyebrows spread like the wings of a fighting cock, the Lord Chancellor, in five vast noiseless strides, had crossed the intervening space and gripped the butler by his collarless shirt as he was disappearing. It was like a hawk striking a sparrow. Mergelson felt himself clutched, glanced over his shoulder, and seeing that fierce familiar face again close to his own, pitiless, vindictive, 
lost all sense of human dignity and yelled like a lost soul. Subchapter 9 Sir Peter Laxton was awakened from an uneasy sleep by the opening of the dressing room door that connected his room with his wife's. He sat up astonished and stared at her white face, its pallor exaggerated by the cold light of dawn. Peter, she said, I'm sure there's something more going on. Something more going on? Something shouting and swearing. You don't mean... She nodded. The Lord Chancellor, she said, in an awe-stricken whisper. He's at it again, downstairs, in the dining room. Sir Peter seemed disposed at first to receive this quite passively. Then he flashed into extravagant wrath. I'm damned, he cried, jumping violently out of bed, if I'm going to stand this. Not if he was a hundred Lord Chancellors. He's turning the place into a bally lunatic asylum. Once, one might excuse, but to start in again? What's that? They both stood still, listening. Faintly, yet Quite distinctly came the agonized cry of some imperfectly educated person. Help! Here, where's my trousers? cried Sir Peter. He's murdering Mergelson. There isn't a moment to lose. Subchapter 10 Until Sir Peter returned, Lady Laxton sat quite still, just as he had left her on his bed, aghast. She could not even pray. The sun had still to rise. The room was full of that cold, weak, inky light. Light without warmth. Knowledge without faith. Existence without courage. That creeps in before the day. She waited. In such a mood... Women have waited for massacre. Downstairs, a raucous shouting. She thought of her happy childhood upon the Yorkshire wolds, before the idea of weekend parties had entered her mind. The heather, the little birds, kind things. A tear ran down her cheek. Subchapter 11 then Sir Peter stood before her again, alive still, but breathless and greatly ruffled. She put her hands to her heart. She would be brave. Yes, she said, tell me. He's as mad as a hatter, said Sir Peter. She nodded for more. She knew that. Has he killed anyone, she whispered. He looked uncommonly like trying, said Sir Peter. She nodded, her lips tightly compressed. Says Douglas will either have to leave the house or he does. But Douglas? I know, but he won't hear a word. But why Douglas? I tell you he's as mad as a hatter. 
got persecution mania. People tapping and bells ringing under his pillow all night, that sort of idea. And furious. I tell you, he frightened me. He was awful. He's given Myrtleson a black eye. Hit him, you know, with his fist. Caught him in the passage to the priest hole. How they got there, I don't know. And went for him like a madman. But what has Douglas done? I know, I asked him, but he won't listen. He's just off his head. Says Douglas has got the whole household trying to work a ghost on him. I tell you, he's off his nut. Husband and wife looked at each other. Of course, if Douglas didn't mind just going off to oblige me, said Sir Peter at last. It might calm him, he explained. You see, it's all so infernally awkward. Is he back in his room? Yes, waiting for me to decide about Douglas, walking up and down. For a little while, their minds remained prostrate and inactive. I'd been so looking forward to the lunch, she said with a joyless smile. The country. She could not go on. You know, said Sir Peter, one thing, I'll see to it myself. I won't have him have a single drop of liquor more if we have to search his room. What I shall say to him at breakfast, she said, I don't know. Sir Peter reflected. There's no earthly reason why you should be brought into it at all. Your line is to know nothing about it. Show him you know nothing about it. Ask him. Ask him if he's had a good night. End of chapter 2 Recording by Narrator J Chapter 3, Part 1 of Bilby, A Holiday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Frank Duncan. Bilby, A Holiday, by H.G. Wells. Chapter 3, Part 1, The Wanderers. Never had the gracious eastward face of Shantz looked more beautiful than it did on the morning of the Lord Chancellor's visit. It glowed as translucent as amber lit by flames. Its two towers were pillars of pale gold. It looked over its slopes and parapets upon a great valley of mist-barred freshness, through which the distant river shone like a snake of light. The southwest façade was still in the shadow, and the ivy hung from it darkly greener, and the greenest green. The stained-glass windows of the old chapel reflected the sunrise, as though lamps were burning inside. Along the terrace, a pensive peacock trailed his sheathed splendors through the dew. Amidst the ivy was a fuss of birds, and presently there was pushed out from amidst the ivy, at the foot of the eastward tower, a little brownish-buff thing that seemed as natural there as a squirrel or rabbit, it was a head, a ruffled human head. It remained still for a moment, contemplating the calm spaciousness of terrace and garden and countryside. 
Then it emerged further and rotated and surveyed the house above it. Its expression was one of alert caution. Its natural freshness and innocence were a little marred by an enormous transverse smudge, a bar sinister of smut, and the elfin delicacy of the left ear was festooned with a cobweb, probably a genuine antique. It was the face of Bilby. He was considering the advisability of leaving Shantz for good. Presently, his decision was made. His hands and shoulders appeared following his head, and then a dusty but undamaged Bilby was running swiftly towards the corner of the shrubbery. He crouched, lest at any moment that pursuing pack of butlers should see him and give tongue. In another moment, he was hidden from the house altogether, and rustling his way through a thicket of budding redondra, after those dirty passages, the morning air was wonderfully sweet, but just a trifle hungry. Grazing deer saw Bilby fly across the park, stared at him for a time, with great, gentle, unintelligent eyes, and went on feeding. They saw him stop, ever and again. He was snatching at mushrooms, that he devoured forthwith as he sped on. On the edge of the beech woods, he paused and glanced back at Shantz. Then his eyes rested for a moment on the clump of trees through which one saw a scrap of the head gardener's cottage, a bit of the garden wall. A physiognomist might have detected a certain lack of self-confidence in Bilby's eyes, but his spirit was not to be quelled, slowly, joylessly, perhaps, but with a grave determination. He raised his hand in the prehistoric gesture of the hand and face by which youth, since ever there was youth, has asserted the integrity of its soul against established and predominant things. Catch me, said Bilby. Bilby left Shantz about half past four in the morning. He went westward because he liked the company of his shadow and was amused at first by its vast length. By half past eight, he had covered ten miles and he was rather bored by his shadow. He had eaten nine raw mushrooms, two green apples, and a quantity of unripe blackberries. None of these things seemed quite at home in him, and he had discovered himself to be wearing slippers. They were stout carpet slippers, but still they were slippers, and the road was telling on them. At the ninth mile, the left one began to give on the outer seam. He got over a stile into a path that ran through the corner of a wood, and there he met a smell of frying bacon that turned his very soul to gastric juice. He stopped short and sniffed the air, and the air itself was sizzling. Oh, crikey, said Bilby, manifestly to the spirit of the world. This is a bit too strong. I wasn't thinking much before. Then he saw something bright and yellow and bulky just over the hedge. From this, it was the sound of frying came. He went to the hedge, making no effort to conceal himself. Outside a great yellow caravan with dainty little windows stood a largest dark woman in a deerstalker hat, a short brown skirt, a large white apron, and spatterdashes, among other things, frying bacon and potatoes in a frying pan. She was very red in the face, and the frying pan was spitting at her, as frying pans do at a timid cook. Quite mechanically, Bilby scrambled through the hedge and drew nearer this divine smell. The woman scrutinized him for a moment, and then blinking and averting her face, went on with her cookery. Bilby came quite close to her and remained, noting the bits of potato that swam above in the pan, the jolly curling of the rashers, 
the dancing of the bubbles the hemming splash and splutter of the happy fat if it should ever fall to my lot to be cooked may i be fried in potatoes and butter may i be fried with potatoes and good butter made from the milk of the cow god send i am spared boiling the prison of the pot the rattling lid the evil darkness the greasy water i suppose said the lady prodding with her fork at the bacon i suppose you call yourself a boy yes miss said bilby have you ever fried i could miss like this better just lay hold of this handle for it's scorching the skin off my face i am she seemed to think for a moment and added entirely in silence bilby grasped that exquisite smell by the handle he took the fork from her hand and put his hungry eager nose over the seething mess it wasn't only bacon there were onions onions giving it an edge it cut to the quick of appetite he would have wept with intensity of his sensations a voice almost as delicious as the smell came out of the caravan window behind bilby's head judy cried the voice here i mean it's here i am said the lady in the deerstalker judy you didn't take my stockings for your own by any chance the lady in the deerstalker gave way to a delighted horror shh mavernine she cried she was one of that large class of amiable women who are more irish than they need be there's a boy here there was indeed an almost obsequiously industrious and obliging boy an hour later he was no longer a boy but the boy and three friendly women were regarding him with a merited approval he had done the frying renewed a wanting fire with remarkable skill and dispatch reboiled a neglected kettle in the shortest possible time laid almost without direction a simple meal very exactly set out the camp stools and cleaned the frying pan marvelously hardly had they taken their portions of that appetizing savoriness than he had whipped off with that implement gone behind the caravan busied himself there and returned with the pan glittering bright himself if possible brighter one cheek indeed shone with an animated glow but wasn't there some of the bacon and stuff left asked the lady in the deerstalker i didn't think it was wanted miss said bilby so i cleared it up he met understanding in her eye he questioned her expression mayn't i wash up for you miss he asked to relieve the tension he washed up swiftly and cleanly he had never been able to wash up to mr mergelson's satisfaction before but now he did everything mr mergelson had ever told him he asked where to put the things away and he put them away then he asked politely if there was anything else he could do for them questioned he said he liked doing things you haven't said the lady in the deerstalker a taste for cleaning boots bilby declared he had surely said a voice that bilby adored tis an angel from heaven he had a taste for cleaning boots this was an extraordinary thing for bilby to say but a great change had come to him in the last half hour he was violently anxious to do things any sort of things servile things for a particular person he was in love the owner of the beautiful voice had come out of the caravan she had stood for a moment in the doorway before descending the steps to the ground and the soul of bilby had bowed down before her in instant submission never had he seen anything so lovely 
Her straight, slender body was sheathed in a blue, fair hair, a little tinged with red, poured gloriously back from her broad forehead, and she had the sweetest eyes in the world. One hand lifted her dress from her feet. The other rested on the lintel of the caravan door. She looked at him and smiled. So for two years she looked and smiled across the footlights to the bilby in mankind. She had smiled now on her entrance, out of habit. She took the effect upon bilby as a foregone conclusion. Then she had looked to make sure that everything was ready before she descended. How good it smells, Judy, she had said. I've had a helper, said the woman who wore spats. That time the blue-eyed lady had smiled at him quite definitely. The third member of the party had appeared unobserved. The irritations of the beautiful lady had obscured her. Bilby discovered her about. She was bareheaded, she wore a simple gray dress with a Norfolk jacket, and she had a pretty clear white profile under black hair. She answered to the name of Winnie. The beautiful lady was Madeline. They made little obscure jokes with each other and praised the morning ardently. This is the best place of all, said Madeline. All night, said Winnie. Not a single mosquito. None of these three ladies made any attempt to conceal the sincerity of their hunger or their appreciation of Bilby's assistance. How good a thing is appreciation. Here he was doing, with joy and pride and eager excellence, the very services he had done so badly under the cuffings of Mergelson and Thomas. And now Bilby, having been regarded with approval for some moments in disgust and tantalizing undertones, was called upon to explain himself. Boy, said the lady in the deerstalker, who was evidently the leader and still more evidently the spokeswoman of the party, come here. Yes, miss, he put down the boot he was cleaning on the caravan step. In the first place, know by these presents, I am a married woman. Yes, miss. And miss is not a seemly mode of address for me. No, miss. I mean, Bilby hung for a moment. And by the happiest of accidents, a scrap of his instruction at Chance came up in his mind. No, he said. Your ladyship. A great light shone on the spokeswoman's face. Not yet, my child, she said. Not yet. He hasn't done his duty by me. I am a simple mum. Bilby was intelligently silent. Say, yes, mum? Yes, mum, said Bilby, and everybody laughed very agreeably. And now, said the lady, taking pleasure in his words, know by these presents, by the by, what is your name? Bilby scarcely hesitated. Thick Maltravers, mum, he said and almost added, the dauntless daredevil of the Diamond Fields horse, which was the second title. Dick will do, said the lady who was called Judy, and added suddenly, and very amusingly, You may keep the rest. These were the sort of people Bilby liked. The right sort. Well, Dick, we want to know, have you ever been in service? It was sudden, but Bilby was equal to it. Only for a day or two, miss. I mean, mum, just to be useful. Were you useful? Bilby tried to think whether he had been and could recall nothing but the face of Thomas, with the fork hanging from it. I did my best, Mum, he said impartially. And all that is over? Yes, Mum. And you're at home again, and out of employment? Yes, Mum. Do you live near here? No, leastways, not very far. 
with your father. Stepfather, Mom, I'm an orphan. Well, how would you like to come with us for a few days and help with things? Seven and sixpence a week. Bilby's face was eloquent. Would your stepfather object? Bilby considered. I don't think he would, he said. You'd better go round and ask him. I suppose yes, he said. And get a few things. Things, Mum? Collars and things. You needn't bring a great box for such a little while. Yes, Mum. He hovered rather undecidedly. Better run along now. Our man and horse will be coming presently. We shan't be able to wait for you long. Bilby assumed a sudden briskness and departed. At the gate of the field he hesitated almost imperceptibly and then directed his face to the Sabbath stillness of the village. Perplexity corrugated his features. The stepfather's permission presented no difficulties, but it was more difficult about the luggage. A voice called after him. Yes, Mum. He said attentive and hopeful. Perhaps, somehow, they wouldn't want luggage. You'll want boots. You'll have to walk by the caravan, you know. You'll want some good stout boots. All right, Mum, he said with a sorrowful break in his voice. He waited a few moments, but nothing more came. He went on, very slowly. He had forgotten about the boots. That defeated him. It is hard to be refused admission to paradise for the want of a handbag and a pair of walking boots. Bilby was by no means certain that he was going back to the caravan. He wanted to do so quite painfully, but he'd just look a fool going back without boots, and nothing on earth would reconcile him to the idea of looking a fool in the eyes of that beautiful woman in blue. Dick, he whispered to himself despondently. Daredevil Dick, a more miserable-looking face you never set eyes on. It's all up with your little schemes, Dick, my boy. You must get a bag, and nothing on earth will get you a bag. He paid little heed to the village through which he wandered. He knew there were no bags there. Chance rather than any volation of his own guided him down a side path that led to the nearly dry bed of a little rivulet, and there he sat down on some weedy grass under a group of willows. It was an untidy place that needed all the sunshine of the morning to be tolerable. One of those places where stinging nettles take heart, and people throw old kettles, broken gallopets, jaded gravel, grass cuttings, rusty rubbish, old boots. For a time, Bilby's eyes rested on the objects with an entire lack of interest. Then he was reminded of his not-so-very-remote childhood, when he had found an old boot and made it into a castle. Presently, he got up and walked across to the rubbish heap and surveyed its treasures with a quickened intelligence. He picked up a widowed boot and weighed it in his hand. He dropped it abruptly, turned about, and hurried back into the village street. He had ideas two ideas, one for the luggage and one for the boots. If only he could manage it. Hope beat his great pinions in the heart of Bilby. Sunday, the shops were shut. Yes, that was a fresh obstacle. He had forgotten that. The public house stood bashfully open, the shy, uninviting openness of Sunday morning, before closing time. But public houses, alas, at all hours are forbidden to little boys. And besides, he wasn't likely to get what he wanted in a public house. 
He wanted a shop, a general shop, and here before him was the general shop, and its door ajar. His desire carried him over the threshold. The sabbatical shutters made the place dark and cool, and the smell of bacon and cheese and chandeliers, the very spirit of grocery, calm and unhurried, was cool and sabbatical, too, as if it sat there for the day in its best clothes, and a pleasant woman was talking over the counter to a thin and worried one who carried a bundle. Their intercourse had a flavor of emergency, and they both stopped abruptly at the appearance of Bilby. His desire, his craving was now so great that it had altogether subdued the natural weariness of his appearance. He looked meek, he looked good, he was swimming in propitiation, and tender with respect. He produced an effect of being much smaller. He had got nice eyes. His movements were refined and his manners perfect. Not doing business today, my boy, said the pleasant woman. Oh, please him, he said from his heart. Sunday, you know. Oh, please em, if you could just give me a nulled sheet of paper em, please. What for? asked the pleasant woman. Just to wrap something up em. She reflected, and natural goodness had its way with her. A nice big bit, said the woman. Please em. Would you like it brown? Oh, please em. And you got some string? Only cottony stuff, said Bilby, disemboweling a trouser pocket, with knots, but I dessay I can manage. You'd better have a bit of good string with it, my dear, said the pleasant woman, whose generosity was now fairly on the run. Then you can do your parcel up and nice and tidy. The white horse was already in the shafts of the caravan, and William, a deaf and clumsy man of uncertain age and a vast, sharp nosiness, was lifting in the basket of breakfast gear and grumbling in undertones at the wickedness and unfairness of traveling on Sunday when Bilby returned to gladden the three waiting women. Ah, said the inconspicuous lady, I knew he'd come. Look at his poor little precious Parsifal, said the actress. Regarded as luggage, it was rather pitiful. A knobby, brown paper parcel about the size, to be perfectly frank, of a tin can. Two old boots and some grass, very carefully folded and tied up, and carried gingerly. But, the lady in the deerstalker began, and then paused. Dick, she said, as he came nearer, where's your boots? Oh, please, mum, said the dauntless one. They was away being mended. My stepfather thought perhaps you wouldn't mind if I didn't have boots. He said perhaps I might be able to get some more boots out of my salary. The lady in the deerstalker looked alarmingly uncertain, and Bilby controlled infinite distresses. Haven't you got a mother, Dick? asked the beautiful voice suddenly. Its owner abounded in such spasmodic curiosities. She, last year, matricide is a painful business at any time, and just as you see, in spite of every effort you have made, the jolliest lark in the world slipping out over your reach, and the sweet voice so sorry for him, so sorry. Bilby suddenly veiled his face with his elbow and gave way to honorable tears. A simultaneous desire to make him happy, help him to forget his loss, possessed three women. That'll be all right, Dick, said the lady in the deerstalker, patting his shoulder. We'll get you some boots tomorrow, and today you must sit up beside William and spare your feet. You'll have to go to the ends with him. It's wonderful, 
the elasticity of youth, said the inconspicuous lady five minutes later. To see that boy now, you'd never imagine he had a sorrow in the world. Now get up there, said the lady who was the leader. We shall walk across the fields and join you later. You understand where you are to wait for us, William. She came nearer and shouted. You understand, William? William nodded ambiguously. Ent of fool, he said. The ladies departed. You'll be all right, Dick, cried the actress kindly. He sat up where he had been put, trying to look as orphan Dick as possible after all that had occurred. End of chapter 3 Part 1「do you know the wind on the heath? Have you lived the gypsy life? Have you spoken, wanderers yourselves, with Romany Chi and Romany Chal on the wind-swept moors at home or abroad? Have you tramped the broad highways and, at close of day, pitched your tent near a running stream and cooked your supper by starlight over a fire of pinewood? Do you know the dreamless sleep of the wanderer at peace with himself and all the world? For most of us the answer to these questions of the amateur camping club is in the negative. Yet every year the call of the road, the Borovian glamour, draws away a certain small number of the imaginative from the grosser comforts of a complex civilization takes them out into tents and caravans and intimate communion with nature and incidentally with various ingenious appliances designed to meet the needs of cooking in a breeze it is an adventure to which high spirits and great expectations must be brought it is an experience in proximity which few friendships survive and altogether very great fun the life of breezy freedom resolves itself in practice chiefly into washing up and an anxious search for permission to camp. One learns how rich and fruitful our world can be in bystanders, and how easy it is to forget essential groceries. The heart of the joy of it lies in its perfect detachment. There you are in the morning sunlight under the trees that overhang the road, going whither you will. Everything you need, you have. Your van creaks along at your side. You are outside inns, outside houses, a home, a community, an imperium in imperio. At any moment you may draw out of the traffic upon the wayside grass and say, Here, until the owner catches us at it, is home. At any time, subject to the complacence of William and your being able to find him, you may inspan and go onward. The world is all before you. You taste the complete yet leisurely insouciance of the snail. 
and two of those three ladies had other satisfactions to supplement their pleasures they both adored madeline phillips she was not only perfectly sweet and lovely but she was known to be so she had that most potent charm for women prestige they had got her all to themselves they could show now how false is the old idea that there is no friendship nor conversation among women they were full of wit and pretty things for one another and snatches of song in between and they were free too from their men-folk they were doing without them dr bowles the husband of the lady in the deerstalker was away in ireland and mr geege the lord of the inconspicuous woman was golfing at sandwich and madeline phillips it was understood was only too glad to shake herself free from the crowd of admirers that hovered about her like wasps about honey yet after three days each one had thoughts about the need of helpfulness and more particularly about washing up that were better left unspoken that were indeed conspicuously unspoken beneath their merry give-and-take like a black and silent river flowing beneath a bridge of ivory and each of them had a curious feeling in the midst of all this fresh free behaviour as though the others were not listening sufficiently as though something of the effect of them was being wasted madeleine's smiles became rarer at times she was almost impassive and judy preserved nearly all her wit and verbal fireworks for the times when they passed through villages mrs geege was less visibly affected she had thoughts of writing a book about it all telling in the gayest most provocative way full of the quietest quaintest humour just how jolly they had been menfolk would read it this kept a little thin smile upon her lips as an audience william was tough stuff he pretended deafness he never looked he did not want to look he seemed always to be holding his nose in front of his face to prevent his observation as men pray into their hats at church but once judy bowles overheard a phrase or so in his private soliloquy pack o women william was saying dratted petticoats dang em that's what i say to em dang em as a matter of fact he just fell short of saying it to them but his manner said it you begin to see how acceptable an addition was young bilby to this company he was not only helpful immensely helpful in things material a vigorous and at first a careful washer-up an energetic boot polisher a most serviceable cleaner and tidier of things but he was also belief and support undisguisedly he thought the caravan the loveliest thing going and its three mistresses the most wonderful of people his alert eyes followed them about full of an unstinted admiration and interest he pricked his ears when judy opened her mouth he handed things to mrs geege he made no secret about madeleine when she spoke to him he lost his breath he reddened and was embarrassed they went across the fields saying that he was the luckiest of fines it was fortunate his people had been so ready to spare him 
judy said boys were a race very cruelly maligned see how willing he was mrs geege said there was something elfin about bilby's little face madeleine smiled at the thought of his quaint artlessness she knew quite clearly that he'd die for her Subchapter eight there was a little pause as the ladies moved away then william spat and spoke in a note of irrational bitterness brasted voolery said william and then loudly and fiercely cam up yod runt you at these words the white horse started into a convulsive irregular redistribution of its feet the caravan strained and quivered into motion and bilby's wanderings as a caravaner began for a time william spoke no more and bilby scarcely regarded him the light of strange fortunes and deep enthusiasm was in bilby's eyes one thing said william they don't have the sense to lock anything up whatever bilby's attention was recalled to the existence of his companion william's face was one of those faces that give one at first the impression of a solitary and very conceited nose the other features are entirely subordinated to that salient effect one sees them later his eyes were small and uneven his mouth apparently toothless thin-lipped and crumpled with the upper lip falling over the other in a manner suggestive of a meagre firmness mixed with appetite when he spoke he made a faint slobbering sound every fink he said behind there he became confidential i been in there i larked about with their things they got some chocolate he said lusciously oh fine all sorts of things he did not seem to expect any reply from bilby we going far before we meet em asked bilby william's deafness became apparent his mind was preoccupied by other ideas one wicked eye came close to bilby's face we going to have a bit of chocolate he said in a wet desirous voice he pointed his thumb over his shoulder at the door you get it said william with reassuring nods and the mouth much pursed and very oblique bilby shook his head it's in a little drawer under a place where she sleeps bilby's headshake became more emphatic yes i tell you said william no said bilby chocolate i tell you said william and ran the tongue of appetite round the rim of his toothless mouth don't want chocolate said bilby thinking of a large lump of it go on said william nobody won't see you go it said william you're afraid said william here i'll go said william losing self-control you just hold these reins bilby took the reins william got out and opened the door of the caravan then bilby realized his moral responsibility and leaving the reins clutched william firmly by his baggy nether garments they were elderly garments much sat upon don't be a vool said william struggling leg all my slack something partially gave way and william's head came round to deal with bilby what you mean pullin my clothes orf me that he investigated take me an hour to sew up 
i ain't going to steal shouted bealby into the ear of william nobody arst you to steal nor you either said bealby the caravan bumped heavily against a low garden wall skidded a little and came to rest william sat down suddenly the white horse after a period of confusion with its legs tried the flavor of some overhanging lilac branches and was content give me those reins said william you'll be the brastidest young vool sit near said william presently chewin our teeth when we might be eatin chocolate i ain't got no use for you said william blowed if i have then the thought of his injuries returned to him i'd make you sew em up yourself darned if i won't only you go runnin the brasted needle into me nars work there is by the feel of it more'n an hour got ob done tool all i got i'll give you somethin you little beast before i done wi ye i wouldn't steal or chocolates said young bealby not if i was starving eh shouted william steal shouted bealby i'll steal ye for i done with ye said william tearin my clothes for me oh come up ye old runt we don't want you to stop and listen come up i tell ye sub chapter eight they found the ladies rather it seemed by accident than design waiting upon a sandy common rich with purple heather and bordered by woods of fir and spruce they had been waiting some time and it was clear that the sight of the yellow caravan relieved an accumulated anxiety bealby rejoiced to see them his soul glowed with the pride of chocolate resisted and william overcome he resolved to distinguish himself over the preparation of the midday meal it was a pleasant little island of green they chose for their midday pitch a little patch of emerald turf amidst the purple a patch already doomed to removal as a bare oblong and a pile of rolled-up turfs witnessed this pile and a little bank of heather and bramble promised shelter from the breeze and down the hill a hundred yards away was a spring and a built-up pool this spot lay perhaps fifty yards away from the high road and one reached it along the ruddy track which had been made by the turf cutters and overhead was the glorious sky of an english summer with great clouds like sunlit white-sailed ships the constable sky the white horse was hobbled and turned out to pasture among the heather and william was sent off to get congenial provender at the nearest public-house william shouted mrs bowles as he departed shouting confidentially into his ear get your clothes mended eh said william mend your clothes yah he did that said william viciously with a movement of self-protection and so went nobody watched him go almost sternly they set to work upon the luncheon preparation as william receded william mrs bowles remarked as she bustled with the patent cooker putting it up wrong way round so that afterwards it collapsed william takes offence sometimes i think he takes offence almost too often did you have any difficulty with him dick it wasn't anything miss said bealby meekly 
Bealby was wonderful with the fire-lighting, and except that he cracked a plate in warming it, quite admirable as a cook. He burnt his fingers twice, and liked doing it. He ate his portion with instinctive modesty on the other side of the caravan, and he washed up, as Mr. Merkelson had always instructed him to do. Mrs. Bowles showed him how to clean knives and forks by sticking them into the turf. A little to his surprise these ladies lit and smoked cigarettes. They sat about and talked perplexingly. Clever stuff! Then he had to get water from the neighboring brook and boil the kettle for an early tea. Madeleine produced a charmingly bound little book and read in it. The other two professed themselves anxious for the view from a neighboring hill. They produced their sensible spiked walking sticks, such as one does not see in England. They seemed full of energy. "'You go,' Madeleine had said, "'while I and Dick stay here and make tea. I've walked enough to-day.' So Bealby, happy to the pitch of ecstasy, first explored the wonderful interior of the caravan. There was a dresser, a stove, let-down chairs and tables, and all manner of things, and then nursed the kettle to the singing stage on the patent cooker, while the beautiful lady reclined close at hand on a rug. Dick, she said. He had forgotten he was Dick. Dick! He remembered his personality with a start. Yes, miss. He knelt up, with a handful of twigs in his hand, and regarded her. Well, Dick, she said. He remained in flush adoration. There was a little pause, and the lady smiled at him, an unaffected smile. "'What are you going to be, Dick, when you grow up?' "'I don't know, miss. I've wondered.' "'What would you like to be?' "'Something abroad, something so that you could see things.' "'A soldier? Or a sailor, miss?' "'A sailor sees nothing but the sea.' "'I'd rather be a sailor than a common soldier, miss.' "'You'd like to be an officer?' "'Yes, miss, only—' "'One of my very best friends is an officer,' she said, a little irreverently, it seemed to Bealby. "'I'd be an officer like a shot,' said Bealby, "'if I had arf a chance, miss.' "'Officers nowadays,' she said, "'have to be very brave, able men.' "'I know, miss,' said Bealby modestly. "'The fire required attention for a little while.' The lady turned over on her elbow. "'What do you think you are likely to be, Dick?' she asked. He didn't know. "'What sort of man is your stepfather?' Bealby looked at her. "'He isn't much,' he said. "'What is he?' Bealby hadn't the slightest intention of being the son of a gardener. "'He's a law-writer.' "'What? In that village?' "'He's as to stay there for his health, miss,' he said. "'Every summer.' His health is very pre-precocious, miss. He fed his fire with a few judiciously administered twigs. What was your own father, Dick? With that, she opened a secret door in Bilby's imagination. All stepchildren have those dreams. With him, they were so frequent and vivid that they had long since become a kind of second truth. He colored a little, and answered with scarcely an interval for reflection. "'He passed as Maltravers, he said. "'Wasn't that his name?' "'I don't rightly know, miss. 
there was always something kept for me my mother used to say artie she used to say there's things that some day you must know things that concern you things about your father but poor as we are now and struggling not yet some day you shall know truly who you are that was how she said it miss and she died before she told you he had almost forgotten that he had killed his mother that very morning yes miss he said she smiled at him and something in her smile made him blush hotly for a moment he could have believed she understood and indeed she did understand and it amused her to find this boy doing what she herself had done at times what indeed she felt it was still in her to do she felt that most delicate of sympathies the sympathy of one rather over-imaginative person for another but her next question dispelled his doubt of her though it left him red and hot she asked it with a convincing simplicity have you any idea dick have you any guess or suspicion i mean who it is you really are i wish i had miss he said i suppose it doesn't matter really but one can't help wondering how often he had wondered in his lonely wanderings through that dear city of daydreams where all the people one knows look out of windows as one passes and the roads are paved with pride how often had he decided and changed and decided again sub chapter nine now suddenly a realization of intrusion shattered this conversation a third person stood over the little encampment smiling mysteriously and waving a clique in a slow hieratic manner through the air delicious little corn said the newcomer in tones of benediction he met their inquiring eyes with a luxurious smile licious he said and remained swaying insecurely and failing to express some imperfectly apprehended deep meaning by short peculiar movements of the clique he was obviously a golfer astray from some adjacent course and he had lunched mighty join you he said and then very distinctly in a full large voice miss madeleine phillips there are the penalties of a public and popular life he's drunk the lady whispered get him to go away dick i can't endure drunken men she stood up and bilby stood up he advanced in front of her slowly with his nose in the air extraordinarily like a small terrier smelling at a strange dog i said mighty join you the golfer repeated his voice was richly excessive he was a big heavy man with a short cropped moustache a great deal of neck and dewlap and a solemn expression prop there introduce myself he remarked he tried to indicate himself by waving his hand towards himself but finally abandoned the attempt as impossible my good social position he said Bilby had a disconcerting sense of retreating footsteps behind him. He glanced over his shoulder and saw Miss Phillips standing at the foot of the steps that led up to the fastnesses of the caravan. Dick, she cried, with a sharp note of alarm in her voice, get rid of that man. A moment after, Bilby heard the door shut and a sound of a key in its lock. 
he concealed his true feelings by putting his arms akimbo sticking his legs wider apart and contemplating the task before him with his head a little on one side he was upheld by the thought that the yellow caravan had a window looking upon him the newcomer seemed to consider the ceremony of introduction completed i don't care rogoff he said almost vaingloriously he waved his cleek to express his preference Nature, he said with a satisfaction that bordered on fatuity he prepared to come down from the little turfy crest on which he stood to the encampment er said bilby this is private the golfer indicated by solemn movements of the clique that this was understood but that other considerations overrode it you you got to go cried bilby in a breathless squeak you get out of here the golfer waved an arm as who should say you do not understand but i forgive you and continued to advance towards the fire and then bilby at the end of his tact commenced hostilities he did so because he felt he had to do something and he did not know what else to do when nothing but friendly conversation such as customary will repeal the golfer was saying and then a large fragment of turf hit him in the neck burst all about him and stopped him abruptly he remained for some lengthy moments too astonished for words he was not only greatly surprised but he chose to appear even more surprised than he was in spite of the brown-black mould upon his cheek and brow and a slight displacement of his cap he achieved a sort of dignity he came slowly to a focus upon Bilby, who stood by the turf pile grasping a second missile. The clique was extended, sceptre-wise. Replace the divot. You go orf, said Bilby. I'll chuck it if you don't. I tell you fair. Replace the divot, roared the golfer again in a voice of extraordinary power. You, you go, said Bilby. Am I to ask you? third time respect rose replace the divot it struck him fully in the face he seemed to emerge through the mould he was blinking but still dignified that was intentional he said he seemed to gather himself together then suddenly and with a surprising nimbleness he discharged himself at bilby he came with astonishing swiftness he got within a foot of him. Well, it was for Bilby that he had learned to dodge in the village playground. He went down under the golfer's arm and away round the end of the stack, and the golfer with his force spent in concussion remained for a time clinging to the turf pile, and apparently trying to remember how he got there. Then he was reminded of recent occurrences by a shrill small voice from the other side of the stack you go away said the voice can't you see you're annoying a lady you go away noish nor anyone peace well whirl but this was subterfuge he meant to catch that boy suddenly and rather brilliantly he turned the flank of the turf pile and only a couple of loose turfs at the foot of the heap upset his calculations he found himself on all fours on ground from which it was difficult to rise 
but he did not lose heart. Boy, scow, he said, and became for a second rush a nimble quadruped. Again he got quite astonishingly near to Bealby, and then in an instant was on his feet and running across the encampment after him. He succeeded in kicking over the kettle and the patent cooker without any injury to himself or loss of pace, and succumbed only to the sharp turn behind the end of the caravan and the steps. He hadn't somehow thought of the steps, so he went down rather heavily, but now the spirit of a fine man was roused. Regardless of the scream from inside that had followed his collapse, he was up and in pursuit almost instantly. Bilby only escaped the swiftness of his rush by jumping the shafts and going away across the front of the caravan to the turf pile again. The golfer tried to jump the shafts too, but he was not equal to that. He did in a manner jump, but it was almost as much diving as jumping, and there was something in it almost like the curvetting of a great horse. When Bilby turned at the crash, the golfer was already on all fours again and trying very busily to crawl out between the shaft and the front wheel. He would have been more successful in doing this if he had not begun by putting his arm through the wheel. As it was, he was trying to do too much. He was trying to crawl out at two points at once and getting very rapidly annoyed at his inability to do so. The caravan was shifting slowly forward. It was manifest to Bilby that getting this man to go was likely to be a much more lengthy business than he had supposed. He surveyed the situation for a moment, and then, realizing the entanglement of his opponent, he seized a camp-stool by one leg, went round by the steps, and attacked the prostrate enemy from the rear with effectual but inconclusive fury. He hammered. "'Steady on, young man,' said a voice, and he was seized from behind. He turned to discover himself in the grip of a second golfer." Another, Bilby fought in a fury of fear. He bit an arm, rather too tweedy to feel much, and got in a couple of shinners, alas, that they were only slippered shinners, before he was overpowered. A cuffed, crumpled, disarmed, and panting Bilby found himself watching the careful extraction of the first golfer from the front wheel. Two friends assisted that gentleman with a reproachful gentleness, and his repeated statements that he was all right seemed to reassure them greatly. Altogether, there were now four golfers in the field, counting the pioneer. "'He was after this devil of a boy,' said the one who held Bilby. "'Yes, but how did he get here?' asked the man who was gripping Bilby. "'Feel better now?' said the third, helping the first comer to his uncertain feet. "'Let me have your clique, oh, man. You won't want your clique.' Across the heather, lifting their heads a little, came Mrs. Bowles and Mrs. Geege, returning from their walk. They were wondering whoever their visitors could be. And then, like music after a dispute, came Madeleine Phillips, a beautiful blue-robed thing, coming slowly with a kind of wonder on her face out of the caravan and down the steps. 
Instinctively, everybody turned to her. The drunkard, with a gesture, released himself from his supporter and stood erect. His cap was replaced upon him, obliquely. His clique had been secured. "'I heard a noise,' said Madeleine, lifting her pretty chin and speaking in her sweetest tones. She looked her inquiries. She surveyed the three sober men with a practiced eye. She chose the tallest, a fair, serious-looking young man, standing conveniently at the drunkard's elbow. "'Will you please take your friend away?' she said, indicating the offender with her beautiful white hand. "'Simley,' he said, in a slightly subdued voice, "'Simley Quaring.' Everybody tried for a moment to understand him. "'Look here, old man, you've got no business here,' said the fair young man. "'You'd better come back to the clubhouse.' The drunken man stuck to his statement. "'Simley Coring,' he said a little louder. "'I think,' said a little bright-eyed man with a very cheerful yellow vest, "'I think he's apologizing. I hope so.' The drunken man nodded his head, that among other matters. The tall young man took his arm, but he insisted on his point. "'Simley Coring,' he said with emphasis, "'if, if done,' want me to cor no tom not at say not at tom not at tom or ni way saying not tom no wish true no wish tall well then you see you'd better come away i arse you are you tom miss miss pips he appealed to miss phillips if you'd answer him said the tall young man no sir she said with great dignity and the pretty chin higher than ever i am not at home nothing more to say then said the drunken man and with a sudden stoicism he turned away come he said submitting to support simly or near he said generally and permitted himself to be led off arni friendly cor for some time he was audible as he receded, explaining in a rather condescending voice the extreme social correctness of his behavior. Just for a moment or so there was a slight tussle due to his desire to return and leave cards. He was afterwards seen to be distributing a small handful of visiting cards amidst the heather with his free arm rather in the manner of a paper chase but much more gracefully then decently and in order he was taken out of sight sub chapter ten bealby had been unostentatiously released by his captor as soon as miss phillips appeared and the two remaining golfers now addressed themselves to the three ladies in regret and explanation the man who had held Bilby was an aquiline, grey-clad person with a cascade moustache and wrinkled eyes, and for some obscure reason he seemed to be amused. The little man in the yellow vest, however, was quite earnest and serious enough to make up for him. He was one of those little fresh-coloured men whose faces stick forward openly. He had open projecting eyes, an open mouth, his cheeks were frank to the pitch of ostentation. His cap was thrust back from his exceptionally open forehead. He had a chest and a stomach. There, too, he held out. 
he would have held out anything. His legs leaned forward from the feet. It was evidently impossible for a man of his nature to be anything but clean-shaved. "'Our fault entirely,' he said. "'Ought to have looked after him. "'Can't say how sorry and ashamed we are. "'Can't say how sorry we are he caused you any inconvenience.' "'Of course,' said Mrs. Bowles, "'our boy's servant ought not to have pelted him.' "'He didn't exactly pelt him, dear,' said Madeleine. "'Well, anyhow, our friend ought not to have been off his chain. "'It was our affair to look after him, and we didn't.' "'You see,' the open young man went on, with the air of lucid explanation, "'he's our worst player.' and he got round in a hundred and twenty-seven and beat somebody and it's upset him it's not a bit of good disguising that we've been letting him drink we have to begin with we encouraged him we oughtn't to have let him go but he thought a walk alone might do him good and some of us were a bit off him fed up rather you see he'd been singing would go on singing he went on to propitiations. Anything the club can do to show how we regret, if you would like to pitch later on in our rough beyond the pine woods, you'd find it safe and secluded, custodian, most civil man, get you water or anything you wanted, especially after all that has happened. Bilby took no further part in these concluding politenesses, he had a curious feeling in his mind that perhaps he had not managed this affair quite so well as he might have done. He ought to have been more tactful-like, more persuasive. He was a fool to have started chucking. Well, well. He picked up the overturned kettle and went off down the hill to get water. What had she thought of him? In the meantime, one can at least boil kettles. Sub-chapter 11 One consequence of this little incident of the rejoicing golfer was that the three ladies were no longer content to dismiss William and Bilby at nightfall and sleep unprotected in the caravan. And this time their pitch was a lonely one, with only the golf club house within call. They were inclined even to distrust the golf club, so it was decided to his great satisfaction that Bilby should have a certain sleeping sack Mrs. Bowles had brought with her, and that he should sleep therein between the wheels. This sleeping sack was to have been a great feature of the expedition, but when it came to the test Judy could not use it. She had not anticipated that feeling of extreme publicity the open air gives one at first. It was like having all the world in one's bedroom. Every night she had relapsed into the caravan. Bilby did not mind what they did with him, so long as it meant sleeping. He had had a long day of it. He undressed sketchily and wriggled into the nice woolly bag and lay for a moment listening to the soft bumpings that were going on overhead. She was there. He had the instinctive confidence of our sex in women, and here were three of them. He had a vague idea of getting out of his bag again and kissing the underside of the van that held this dear, beautiful creature. He didn't. 
Such a lot of things had happened that day, and the day before. He had been going without intermission, it seemed now, for endless hours. He thought of trees, roads, dew-wet grass, frying pans, pursuing packs of gigantic butlers, hopelessly at fault. No doubt they were hunting now, chinks and crannies, tactless missiles flying, bursting, missiles it was vain to recall. He stared for a few seconds through the wheel-spokes at the dancing, crackling fire of pine-cones which it had been his last duty to replenish, stared and blinked much as a little dog might do, and then he had slipped away altogether into the world of dreams. Subchapter 12 In the morning he was extraordinarily hard to wake. "'Is it after sleeping all day ye'd be?' cried Judy Bowles, who was always at her most Irish about breakfast time. End of chapter 3「Chapter 4 a Holiday This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros Bilby, A Holiday by H. G. Wells Chapter 4 The Unobtrusive Parting Part 1 Subchapter 1 Monday was a happy day for Bealby. The caravan did seventeen miles, and came to rest at last in a sloping field outside a cheerful little village set about a green on which was a long tent professing to be a theatre. At the first stopping place that possessed a general shop, Mrs. Bowles bought Bealby a pair of boots. Then she had a bright idea. "'Got any pocket money, Dick?' she asked. She gave him half a crown. That is to say, she gave him two shillings and sixpence, or five sixpence, or thirty pennies, according as you choose to look at it, in one large undivided shining coin. Even if he had not been in love, here surely was incentive to a generous nature to help and do distinguished services. He dashed about doing things. The little accident on Sunday had warned him to be careful of the plates, and the only flaw upon a perfect day's service was the dropping of an egg on its way to the frying-pan for supper. It remained where it fell, and there presently he gave it a quiet burial. There was nothing else to be done with it. All day long, at intervals, Miss Phillips smiled at him and made him do little services for her, and in the evening, after the custom of her great profession when it keeps holiday, she insisted on going to the play. She said it would be the loveliest fun. She went with Mrs. Bowles because Mrs. Geege wanted to sit quietly in the caravan and write down a few little things while they were still fresh in her mind and it wasn't in the part of Madeleine Phillips not to insist that both William and Bealby must go too. She gave them each a shilling, though the prices were sixpence, threepence, twopence, and a penny, and Bealby saw his first real play. It was called Brothers in Blood, 
or the gentleman ranker there was a poster which was only very slightly justified by the performance of a man in khaki with a bandaged head proposing to sell his life dearly over a fallen comrade one went to the play through an open and damaged field gate and across trampled turf outside the tent were two paraffin flares illuminating the poster and a small cluster of the impecunious young within on grass that was worn and bleached were benches a gathering audience a piano played by an off-hand lady and a drop scene displaying the grand canal venice the grand canal was infested by a crowded multitude of zealous and excessive reflections of the palaces above and by peculiar crescentic black boats floating entirely out of water and having no reflections at all the off-hand lady gave a broad impression of the wedding march in lohengrin and the back seats assisted by a sort of gastric vocalization called humming and by whistling between the teeth madeleine phillips evidently found it tremendous fun even before the curtain rose and then illusion the scenery was ridiculous it waved about the actors and actresses were surely the most pitiful of their tribe and every invention in the play impossible but the imagination of bilby like the loving-kindness of god made no difficulties it rose and met and embraced and gave life to all these things it was a confused story in the play everybody was more or less somebody else all the way through and it got more confused in bilby's mind but it was clear from the outset that there was vile work afoot nets spread and sweet simple people wronged and never were sweet and simple people quite so sweet and simple there was the wrongful brother who was weak and wicked and the rightful brother who was vindictively almost viciously good and there was an ingrained villain who was a baronet a man who wore a frock coat and a silk hat and carried gloves and a stick in every scene and upon all occasions that sort of man he looked askance always there was a dear simple girl with a vast sweet smile who was loved according to their natures by the wrongful and the rightful brother and a large wicked red-clad lip-biting woman whose passions made the crazy little stage quiver there was a comic butler very different stuff from old merkelson who wore an evening coat and plaid trousers and nearly choked bilby why weren't all butlers like that funny and there were constant denunciations always there were denunciations going on or denunciations impending that took bilby particularly never surely in all the world were bad people so steadily and thoroughly scolded and told what everybody hissed them bilby hissed them and when they were told what he applauded and yet they kept on with their wickedness to the very curtain they retired askance to the end foiled but pursuing a time will come they said 
there was a moment in the distresses of the heroine when bealby dashed aside a tear and then at last most wonderfully it all came right the company lined up and hoped that bealby was satisfied bealby wished he had more hands his heart seemed to fill his body oh prime prime and out he came into the sympathetic night but he was no longer a trivial bilby his soul was purged he was a strong and silent man ready to explode into generous repartee or nerve himself for high endeavor he slipped off in the opposite direction from the caravan because he wanted to be alone for a time and feel he did not want to jar upon a sphere of glorious illusion that had blown up in his mind like a bubble he was quite sure that he had been wronged not to be wronged is to forego the first privilege of goodness he had been deeply wronged by a plot all those butlers were in the plot or why should they have chased him he was much older than he really was it had been kept from him and in truth he was a rightful heir earl Shantz, he whispered and indeed why not and madeleine too had been wronged she had been reduced to wander in this uncomfortable caravan this gypsy queen she had been brought to it by villains the same villains who had wronged bealby out he went into the night the kindly consenting summer night where there is nothing to be seen or heard that will contradict these delicious wonderful persuasions he was so full of these dreams that he strayed far away along the dark country lanes and had at last the utmost difficulty in finding his way back to the caravan and when ultimately he got back after hours and hours of heroic existence it did not even seem that they had missed him it did not seem that he had been away half an hour subchapter two tuesday was not so happy a day for bealby as monday its shadows began when mrs bowles asked him in a friendly tone when it was clean collar day he was unready with his answer. "'And don't you ever use a hairbrush, Dick?' she asked. "'I'm sure now there's one in your parcel.' "'I do use it sometimes, Mum,' he admitted. "'And I've never detected you with a toothbrush yet, though that perhaps is extreme. "'And, Dick, soap? I think you'd better be letting me give you a cake of soap.' "'I'd be very much obliged, Mum.' i hardly dare hint dick at a clean handkerchief such things are known if you wouldn't mind when i've got the breakfast things done mum the thing worried him all through breakfast he had not expected personalities from mrs bowles more particularly personalities of this kind he felt he had to think hard he affected modesty after he had cleared away breakfast and carried off his little bundle to a point in the stream which was massed from the encampment by willows with him he also brought that cake of soap he began by washing his handkerchief which was bad policy because that left him no dry towel but his jacket he ought he perceived to have secured a dishcloth or a newspaper 
This he must remember on the next occasion. He did over his hands and the more exposed parts of his face with soap and jacket. Then he took off and examined his collar. It certainly was pretty bad. "'Why?' cried Mrs. Bowles when he returned. "'That's still the same collar.' "'They all seem to have got crumpled, Mum,' said Bealby. "'But are they all as dirty?' "'I had some blacking in my parcel,' said Bealby, "'and it got loose, Mum. "'I'll have to get another collar when we come to a shop.' "'It was a financial sacrifice, but it was the only way, "'and when they came to the shop, "'Bealby secured a very nice collar indeed, "'high with pointed, turned-down corners, "'so that it cut his neck all round, "'jabbed him under the chin, "'and gave him a proud, upcast carriage of the head,' that led to his treading upon and very completely destroying a stray plate while preparing lunch. But it was more of a man's collar, he felt, than anything he had ever worn before, and it cost sixpence halfpenny, six d and a half. I should have mentioned that while washing up the breakfast things he had already broken the handle off one of the breakfast cups. Both these accidents deepened the cloud upon his day. And then there was the trouble of William, William, having meditated upon the differences between them for a day, had now invented an activity. As Bealby sat beside him, behind the white horse, he was suddenly and frightfully pinched. Gee, one wanted to yelp. Chocolate! said William through his teeth, and very, very savagely. Now then! After William had done that twice, Bealby preferred to walk beside the caravan. Thereupon William whipped up the white horse, and broke records, and made all the crockery sing together, and forced the pace until he was spoken to by Mrs. Bowles. It was upon a Bilby thus depressed and worried that the rumour of impending menfolk came. It began after the party had stopped for letters at a village post-office. There were not only letters but a telegram that Mrs. Bowles read with her spats far apart and her head on one side. "'Ye'd like to know about it,' she said waggishly to Miss Phillips, "'and you just shan't.' She then went into her letters. "'You've got some news,' said Mrs. Geach. "'I have that,' said Mrs. Bowles, and not a word more could they get from her. "'I'll keep my news no longer,' said Mrs. Bowles, lighting her cigarette after lunch, as Bealby hovered about, clearing away the banana skins and such-like vestiges of dessert. "'Tomorrow night, as ever is, if so be we get to Winthrop Sutbury, there'll be men among us.' "'But Tom's not coming,' said Mrs. Geach. "'He asked him to tell me to tell you. "'And you've kept it these two hours, Judy, for your own good and peace of mind. "'But now the mother's out. "'Come they will, your man and my man, pretending to a pity because they can't do without us.' but like the self-indulgent monsters they are they must needs stop at some grand hotel red lake he calls it the royal on the hill above winthorpe sutbury the royal the very name describes it can't you see the lounge girls with its white cane chairs and saddle-backs 
no other hotel it seems is good enough for them and we if you please are asked to go in and have what does the man call it the comforts of decency and let the caravan rest for a bit tim promised me i should run wild as long as i chose said mrs geege looking anything but wild thereafter thinking we've had enough of it said mrs bowles it sounds like that sure i'd go on like this forever said judy tis the man and the house and all of it that oppresses me vans for women let's not go to winthorpe sutbury said madeleine the first word of sense bealby had heard ah said mrs bowles archly who knows but what there'll be a man for you some sort of man anyhow bealby thought that a most improper remark i want no man ah why do you say ah like that because i mean ah like that meaning just that miss phillips eyed mrs bowles and mrs bowles eyed miss phillips judy she said you've got something up your sleeve where it's perfectly comfortable said mrs bowles and then quite maddeningly she remarked will you be after washing up presently dick and looked at him with a roguish quiet over her cigarette it was necessary to disabuse her mind at once of the idea that he had been listening he took up the last few plates and went off to the washing-place by the stream all the rest of that conversation had to be lost except that as he came back for the hudson's soap he heard miss phillips say keep your old men i'll just console myself with dick my dears making such a mystery to which mrs bowles replied darkly she little knows a kind of consolation was to be got from that but what was it she little knew Subchapter three the men-folk when they came were nothing so terrific to the sight as bealby had expected and thank heaven there were only two of them and each assigned something he perceived was said about someone else he couldn't quite catch what but if there was to have been someone else at any rate there now wasn't professor bowles was animated and mr geege was gracefully cold they kissed their wives but not offensively and there was a chattering pause while bealby walked on beside the caravan they were on the bare road that runs along the high ridge above winthorpe sutbury and the men had walked to meet them from some hotel or other bealby wasn't clear about that by the golf links judy was the life and soul of the encounter and all for asking the men what they meant by intruding upon three independent women who sure alive could very well do without them professor bowles took her pretty calmly and seemed on the whole to admire her professor bowles was a compact little man wearing spectacles with alternative glasses partly curved partly flat he was hairy and dressed in that sort of soft tweedy stuff that ravels out he seemed to have been sitting among thorns and baggy knickerbockers with straps and very thick stockings and very sensible open air in fact quite mountainous boots and yet though he was short and stout and active he had a kind of authority about him 
and it was clear that for all her persuasiveness his wife merely ran over him like a creeper without making any great difference to him i found he said the perfect place for your encampment she had been making suggestions and presently he left the ladies and came hurrying after the caravan to take control he was evidently a very controlling person here you get down he said to william that poor beast got enough to pull without you and when william mumbled he said hey in such a shout that william forever after held his peace where do you come from you boy you he asked suddenly and bealby looked to mrs bowles to explain great silly collar you've got said the professor interrupting her reply boy like this ought to wear a wool shirt dirty too take it off boy it's choking you don't you feel it then he went on to make trouble about the tackle william had rigged to contain the white horse this harness makes me sick said professor bowles it's worse than italy ah he cried and suddenly darted off across the turf going inelegantly and very rapidly with peculiar motions of the head and neck as he brought first the flat and then the curved surface of his glasses into play finally he dived into the turf remained scrabbling on all fours for a moment or so became almost still for the fraction of a minute and then got up and returned to his wife holding in an exquisite manner something that struggled between his finger and his thumb that's the third to-day he said triumphantly they swarm here it's a migration then he resumed his penetrating criticism of the caravan outfit that boy he said suddenly with his glasses oblique hasn't taken off his collar yet Bilby revealed the modest secrets of his neck and pocketed the collar. Mr. Geege did not appear to observe Bilby. He was a man of the super-aquiline type, with a nose like a rudder. He held his face as if it was a hatchet in a procession, and walked with the dignity of a man of honor. You could see at once he was a man of honor. Inflexibly, invincibly, he was a man of honor you felt that anywhere in a fire in an earthquake in a railway accident when other people would be running about and doing things he would have remained a man of honour it was his pride rather than his vanity to be mistaken for sir edward grey he now walked along with miss phillips and his wife behind the disputing bolses and discoursed in deep sonorous tones about the healthiness of healthy places and the stifling feeling one had in towns when there was no air subchapter four the professor was remarkably active when at last the point he had chosen for the encampment was reached bilby was told to look alive twice and william was assigned to his genus and species the man's an absolute idiot was the way the professor put it william just shot a glance at him over his nose the place certainly commanded a wonderful view it was a turfy bank protected from the north and south by bushes of yew and the beech-bordered edge of a chalk pit it was close beside the road 
a road which went steeply down the hill into Winthorpe Sutbury. With that intrepid decision peculiar to the hill roads of the south of England, it looked indeed as though you could throw the rinse of your teacups into the Winthorpe Sutbury Street, as if you could jump and impale yourself upon the church spire. The hills bellied out east and west and carried hangers, and then swept round to the west in a long level succession of projections a perspective that merged at last with the general horizon of hilly bluenesses amidst which professor bowles insisted upon a sapphire glimpse of sea the channel said professor bowles as though that made it easier for them only mr geege refused to see even that mitigated version of the sea there was something perhaps bluish and level, but he was evidently not going to admit it was sea until he had paddled in it and tested it in every way known to him. "'Good Lord!' cried the professor. "'What's the man doing now?' William stopped the struggles and confidential discouragements he was bestowing upon the white horse and waited for a more definite reproach. "'Putting the caravan alongside to the sun, "'do you think it will ever get cool again? "'And think of the blaze of the sunset "'through the glass of that door.' "'William spluttered. "'If I put in t'other way, "'go running down to you like,' said William. "'Imbecile!' cried the professor. "'Put something under the wheels. "'Here!' "'He careered about and produced "'great grey fragments of a perished yew-tree.' now then he said head up hill william did his best oh not like that here you bealby assisted with obsequious enthusiasm it was some time before the caravan was adjusted to the complete satisfaction of the professor but at last it was done and the end door gaped at the whole prospect of the wheeled with the steps hanging out idiotically like a tongue the hind-wheels were stayed up very cleverly by lumps of chalk and chunks of yew, living and dead, and certainly the effect of it was altogether taller and better. And then the preparations for the midday cooking began. The professor was full of acute ideas about camping and cooking, and gave Bilby a lively but instructive time. There was no stream handy, but William was sent off to the hotel to fetch a garden water-cart that the professor with infinite foresight had arranged should be ready. The Geeges held aloof from these preparations. They were unassuming people. Miss Phillips concentrated her attention upon the wield. It seemed to Bilby a little discontentedly, as if it was unworthy of her and Mrs. Bowles hovered smoking cigarettes over her husband's activities, acting great amusement. "'You see, it pleases me to get himself busy,' she said. "'You'll end a camper yet, darlint, and us in the hotel.' The professor answered nothing, but seemed to plunge deeper into practicality. Under the urgency of Professor Bowles, Bilby stumbled and broke a glass jar of marmalade over some fried potatoes, but otherwise did well as a cook's assistant. Once things were a little interrupted by the professor going off to catch a cricket, 
but whether it was the right sort of cricket or not he failed to get it and then there were three loud reports for a moment bilby thought the mad butlers from chance were upon him with firearms captain douglas arrived and got off his motor bicycle and left it by the roadside his machine accounted for his delay for those were the early days of motor bicycles it also accounted for a black smudge under one of his bright little eyes he was fair and flushed dressed in oilskins and a helmet-shaped cap and great gauntlets that made him in spite of the smudge look strange and brave and handsome like a crusader only that he was clad in oilskin and not steel and his moustache was smaller than those crusaders wore and when he came across the turf to the encampment mrs bowles and mrs gage both set up a cry of ah ah and miss phillips turned an accusing face upon those two ladies bilby knelt with a bunch of knives and forks in his hand laying the cloth for lunch and when he saw captain douglas approaching miss phillips he perceived clearly that that lady had already forgotten her lowly adorer and his little heart was smitten with desolation this man was arrayed like a chivalrous god and how was a poor bilby whose very collar his one little circlet of manhood had been reft from him how was he to compete with this tremendousness in that hour the ambition for mechanism the passion for leather and oilskin was sown in bilby's heart i told you not to come near me for a month said madeleine but her face was radiant these motor bicycles very difficult to control said captain douglas and all the little golden white hairs upon his sunlit cheek glittered in the sun and besides said mrs bowles it's all nonsense the professor was in a state of arrested administration the three others were frankly audience to a clearly understood scene you ought to be in france i'm not in france i sent you into exile for a month and she held out a hand for the captain to kiss he kissed it some day somewhere it was written in the book of destiny bilby should also kiss hands it was a lovely thing to do month it's been years said the captain years and years then you ought to have come back before she replied and the captain had no answer ready Subchapter five when william arrived with the water cart he brought also further proofs of the professor's organizing ability he brought various bottles of wine red burgundy and sparkling hock two bottles of cider and peculiar and meritorious waters he brought tin things for hors d'oeuvre he brought some luscious pears when he had a moment with bilby behind the caravan he repeated thrice in tones of hopeless sorrow they'll eat em all i knows they'll eat em all and then plumbing a deeper deep of woe ef they don't they'll count em od goggles a bag em he's a bagger he is it was the brightest of luncheons that was eaten that day in the sunshine and spaciousness above winthorpe sutbury 
Everyone was gay, and even the love-torn Bilby, who might well have sunk into depression and lethargy, was galvanized into an activity that was almost cheerful by flashes from the professor's glasses. They talked of this and that. Bilby hadn't much time to attend, though the laughter that followed various sallies from Judy Bowles was very tantalizing and it had come to the pairs before his attention wasn't so much caught as felled by the word chance it was as if the sky had suddenly changed to vermilion all these people were talking of chance went there said captain douglas in perfect good faith wanted to fill up lucy's little party one doesn't go to chance nowadays for idle pleasure and then i get ordered out of the house absolutely told to go this man had been at chance that was on sunday morning said mrs geach on sunday morning said mrs bowles suddenly we were almost within sight of chance this man had been at chance even at the time when bilby was there early on sunday morning told to go i was fairly flabbergasted what the deuce is a man to do? Where's he to go? Sunday? One doesn't go to places Sunday morning. There I'd been, sleeping like a lamb all night, and suddenly in came Laxton and said, Look here, you know, he said, You've got to oblige me, and pack your bag and go. Now. Why? said I. Because you've driven the Lord Chancellor stark staring mad. "'But how?' asked the professor, almost angrily. "'How? I don't see it. Why should he ask you to go?' "'I don't know,' cried Captain Douglas. "'Yes, but,' said the professor, protesting against the unreasonableness of mankind. "'I'd had a word or two with him in the train, nothing to speak of. "'About occupying two corner seats always strikes me as a cad's trick, "'but on my honour I didn't rub it in. "'And then he got it into his head we were laughing at him at dinner. "'We were a bit, but only the sort of thing one says about anyone. "'Way he works his eyebrows and all that. "'And then he thought I was ragging him. "'I don't rag people. "'Got it so strongly he made a row that night.' said i'd made a ghost slap him on his back hang it what can you say to a thing like that in my room all the time you suffer for the sins of your brother said mrs bowles heavens cried the captain i never thought of that perhaps he mistook me he reflected for a moment and continued his narrative then in the night you know he heard noises they always do said the professor nodding confirmation couldn't sleep a sure sign said the professor and finally he sallied out in the early morning caught the butler in one of the secret passages how did the butler get into the secret passage going round i suppose part of his duties anyway he gave the poor beggar an awful doing awful brutal black eye all that sort of thing man much too respectful to hit back finally declared i'd been getting up a kind of rag squaring the servants to help and so forth laxton i fancy half believed it awkward thing you know having it said about you you ragged the lord chancellor makes a man seem a sort of mischievous idiot 
injures a man then going away you see seems a kind of admission why did you go lucy said the captain compactly hysterics chance would have burst he added if i hadn't gone madeleine was helpful but you'll have to do something further she said what is one to do squealed the captain the sooner you get the lord chancellor certified a lunatic said the professor soundly the better for your professional prospects he went on pretty bad after i'd gone you've heard two letters i picked him up at wheatley post office this morning you know he hadn't done with that butler actually got out of his place and scruffed the poor devil at lunch shook him like a rat she says said the man wasn't giving him anything to drink nice story eh anyhow he scruffed him until things got broken i had it all from minnie tambor you know used to be minnie flax he shot a propitiating glance at madeleine used to be neighbors of ours you know in the old time half the people she says didn't know what was happening thought the butler was apoplectic and that old muggeridge was helping him stand up taking off his collar it was laxton thought of saying it was a fit told everybody she says had to tell him something i suppose but she saw better and she thinks a good many others did laxton ran em both out of the room nice scene for chance eh thundering awkward for poor lucy not the sort of thing the county expected has her both ways can't go to a house where the lord chancellor goes mad one alternative can't go to a house where the butler has fits that's the other see the dilemma i've got a letter from lucy too it's here he struggled see eight sheets pencil no joke for a man to read that and she writes worse than any decent self-respecting illiterate woman has a right to do quivers like writing in a train can't read half of it but she's got something about a boy on her mind mad about a boy have i taken away a boy they've lost a boy took him in my luggage i suppose she'd better write to the lord chancellor likely as not he met him in some odd corner and flew at him smashed him to atoms dispersed him anyhow they've lost a boy he protested to the world i can't go hunting lost boys for lucy i've done enough coming away as i did mrs bowles held out an arresting cigarette what sort of boy was lost she asked i don't know some little beast of a boy i dare say she'd only imagined it whole thing been too much for her read that over again said mrs bowles about losing a boy we found one that little chap we found that boy she glanced over her shoulder but bilby was nowhere to be seen on sunday morning near chance he strayed into us like a lost kitten but i thought you said you knew his father judy objected the professor didn't verify said mrs bowles shortly and then to captain douglas read over again what lady laxton says about him sub chapter six
Captain Douglas struggled with the difficulties of his cousin's handwriting. Everybody drew together over the fragments of the dessert with an eager curiosity, and helped to weigh Lady Laxton's rather disheveled phrases. End of chapter 4「Bealby, a Holiday」This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros Bealby, a Holiday by H. G. Wells Chapter 4 The Unobtrusive Parting Part 2 Subchapter 7 "'We'll call the principal witness,' said Mrs. Bowles at last, warming to the business. "'Dick! Dick! Dick!' The professor got up and strolled round behind the caravan. Then he returned. "'No boy there!' "'He heard!' said Mrs. Bowles, in a large whisper, and making round wonder eyes. "'She says!' said Douglas, that the chances are he's got into the secret passages. The professor strolled out to the road, and looked up it and then down upon the roofs of Winthorpe Sutbury. No, he said, he's mizzled. He's only gone away for a bit, said Mrs. Geach. He does sometimes after lunch. He'll come back to wash up. He's probably taking a snooze among the yew bushes before facing the labors of washing up, said Mrs. Bowles. He can't have mizzled. You see, in there, he can't by any chance have taken his luggage. She got up and clambered, with a little difficulty because of its piled-up position, into the caravan. It's all right, she called out of the door. His little Parsifal is still here. Her head disappeared again. I don't think he'd go away like this, said Madeleine. After all, what is there for him to go to, even if he is Lady Laxton's missing boy? I don't believe he heard a word of it, said Mrs. Geege. Mrs. Bowles reappeared, with a curious-looking brown paper parcel in her hand. She descended carefully. She sat down by the fire and held the parcel on her knees. She regarded it and her companions waggishly, and lit a fresh cigarette. "'Our link with Dick,' she said, with the cigarette in her mouth. She felt the parcel, she poised the parcel, she looked at it more and more waggishly. "'I wonder,' she said. Her expression became so waggish that her husband knew she was committed to behavior of the utmost ungentlemanliness. He had long ceased to attempt restraint in these moods. She put her head on one side and tore open the corner of the parcel just a little way. "'A tin can,' she said in a stage whisper. She enlarged the opening. "'Blades of grass,' she said. The professor tried to regard it humorously. "'Even if you have ceased to be decent, you can still be frank.' I think now, my dear, you might just straightforwardly undo the parcel. She did. Twelve unsympathetic eyes surveyed the evidences of Bilby's utter poverty. He's coming, cried Madeleine suddenly. 
Judy repacked hastily, but it was a false alarm. I said he'd mizzled, said the professor. And without washing up, wailed Madeleine. I couldn't have thought it of him. Subchapter 8 But Bealby had not mizzled, although he was conspicuously not in evidence about the camp. There was neither sight nor sound of him, for all the time they sat about the vestiges of their meal. They talked of him and of topics arising out of him, and whether the captain should telegraph to Lady Laxton. Boy practically found. I'd rather just find him, said the captain, and anyhow, until we get hold of him, we don't know it's her particular boy. Then they talked of washing up, and how detestable it was. And suddenly the two husbands, seeing their advantage, renewed their proposals that the caravanners should put up at the Golf Links Hotel, and have baths and the comforts of civilization for a night or so, and anyhow walk thither for tea. And as William had now returned, he was sitting on the turf afar off smoking a nasty-looking short clay pipe, they rose up and departed. But Captain Douglas and Miss Phillips, for some reason, did not go off exactly with the others, but strayed apart, straying away more and more into a kind of solitude. First the four married people, and then the two lovers disappeared over the crest of the downs. Subchapter 9 for a time, except for its distant sentinel, the caravan seemed absolutely deserted, and then a clump of bramble against the wall of the old chalk pit became agitated, and a small, rueful, disillusioned, white-smeared little Bealby crept back into the visible universe again. His heart was very heavy. The time had come to go and he did not want to go. He had loved the caravan. He had adored Madeleine. He would go, but he would go beautifully, touchingly. He would wash up before he went. He would make everything tidy. He would leave behind him a sense of irreparable loss. With a mournful precision he set about this undertaking. If Mergelson could have seen, Mergelson would have been amazed he made everything look wonderfully tidy. Then, in the place where she had sat, lying on her rug, he found her favorite book, a small volume of Swinburne's poems, very beautifully bound. Captain Douglas had given it to her. Bealby handled it with a kind of reverence. So luxurious it was, so unlike the books in Bealby's world, so altogether of her quality. Strange forces prompted him. For a time he hesitated. Then decision came with a rush. He selected a page, drew the stump of a pencil from his pocket, wetted it very wet and breathing hard, began to write that traditional message, Farewell. Remember Art Bilby. To this he made an original addition, I washed up before I went. Then he remembered that, so far as this caravan went, he was not Art Bilby at all. He renewed the wetness of his pencil, and drew black lines athwart the name of Art Bilby, until it was quite unreadable. Then across this again, and pressing still deeper, so that the subsequent pages re-echoed it, he wrote these singular words, 
Ed, rightful Earl Schantz. Then he was ashamed, and largely obliterated this by still more forcible strokes. Finally above it, plainly and nakedly, he wrote, Dick Maltravers. He put down the book with a sigh and stood up. Everything was beautifully in order, but could he not do something yet? There came to him the idea of wreathing the entire camping place with boughs of yew. It would look lovely and significant. He set to work. At first he toiled zealously, but yew is tough to get, and soon his hands were painful. He cast about for some easier way, and saw beneath the hind wheels of the caravan great green boughs, one particularly a splendid long branch. It seemed to him that it would be possible to withdraw this branch from the great heap of sticks and stones that stayed up the hind wheels of the caravan. It seemed to him that that was so. He was mistaken, but that was his idea. He set to work to do it. It was rather more difficult to manage than he had supposed. There were unexpected ramifications, wider resistances. Indeed, the thing seemed rooted. Bealby was a resolute youngster at bottom. He warmed to his task. He tugged harder and harder. Subchapter 10 How various is the quality of humanity! About Bealby there was ever an imaginative touch. He was capable of romance, of gallantries, of devotion. William was of a grosser clay, slave of his appetites, a materialist. Such men as William drive one to believe in born inferiors, in the existence of a lower sort, in the natural inequality of men. While Bealby was busy at his little gentle task of reparation, a task foolish perhaps, and not too ably conceived, but at any rate morally gracious, William had no thought in the world but the satisfaction of those appetites that the consensus of all mankind has definitely relegated to the lower category, and which heaven has relegated to the lower regions of our frame. He came now slinking towards the vestiges of the caravaner's picnic, and no one skilled in the interpretation of the human physiognomy could have failed to read the significance of the tongue-tip that drifted over his thin, oblique lips. He came so softly towards the encampment that Bealby did not note him. Partly William thought of remnants of food, but chiefly he was intent to drain the bottles. Bealby had stuck them all neatly in a row a little way up the hill. There was a cider bottle with some heel-taps of cider. William drank that. Then there was nearly half a bottle of hock, and William drank that. Then there were the drainings of the Burgundy and Apollinaris. It was all drink to William. And after he had drained each bottle, William winked at the watching angels and licked his lips, and patted the lower centers of his being with a shameless base approval. Then, fired by alcohol, robbed of his last vestiges of self-control, his thoughts turned to the delicious chocolates that were stored in a daintily beribboned box in the little drawers beneath the sleeping bunk of Miss Phillips. 
There was a new brightness in his eye, a spot of pink in either cheek. With an expression of the lowest cunning, he reconnoitred Bilby. Bilby was busy about something, at the back end of the caravan, tugging at something. With swift, stealthy movements of an entirely graceless sort, William got up into the front of the caravan. Just for a moment he hesitated before going in. He craned his neck to look round the side at the unconscious Bilby, wrinkled the vast nose into an unpleasant grimace, and then, a crouching figure of appetite, he crept inside. Here they were. He laid his hand in the drawer, halted, listening. What was that? Suddenly the caravan swayed. He stumbled, and fear crept into his craven soul. The caravan lurched. It was moving. Its hind wheels came to the ground with a crash. He took a step doorward, and was pitched sideways and thrown upon his knees. Then he was hurled against the dresser and hit by a falling plate. A cup fell and smashed, and the caravan seemed to leap and bound. Through the little window he had a glimpse of yew bushes hurrying upward. The caravan was going downhill. "'Lummy!' said William, clutching at the bunks to hold himself upright. "'Can't be that drink!' said William, a spread and aghast. He attempted the door. "'Crikey! Here! Hold in! My shin! Oh, "'Tis that brasted vol of a boy!' said William. Subchapter 11 The caravan party soon came to its decision. They would stay the night in the hotel, and so as soon as they had had some tea they decided to go back and make William bring the caravan and all the ladies' things round to the hotel. With characteristic eagerness Professor Bowles led the way. And so it was Professor Bowles who first saw the release of the caravan. He barked, one short, sharp bark. Whoop! he cried, and very quickly, What's the boy doing? Then quite a different style of noise, with the mouth open. Wah! Whoop! Then he set off running very fast, down towards the caravan, waving his arms and shouting as he ran, Yaps! You idiot! Yaps! The others were less promptly active. Down the slope they saw Bealby, a little struggling, active Bealby, tugging away at a yew branch until the caravan swayed with his efforts, and then, then there was a movement as though the thing tossed its head and reared, and a smash as the heap of stuff that stayed up its hind wheels collapsed. It plunged like a horse with a dog at its heels. It lurched sideways, and then, with an air of quiet deliberation, started down the grass slope to the road and Winthorpe Sutbury. Professor Bowles sped in pursuit like the wind, and Mrs. Bowles, after a gasping moment, set off after her lord, her face round and resolute. Mr. Geege followed at a more dignified pace, making the only really sound suggestion that was offered on the occasion. "'Hugh, stop it!' cried Mr. Geege, for all the world like his great prototype at the Balkan conference. And then, like a large languid pair of scissors, he began to run. Mrs. Geege, after some indefinite moments, decided to see the humor of it all, 
and followed after her lord in a fluttering rush emitting careful little musical giggles as she ran giggles that she had learnt long ago from a beloved schoolfellow captain douglas and miss phillips were some way behind the others and the situation had already developed considerably before they grasped what was happening then obeying the instincts of a soldier the captain came charging to support the others and miss madeleine phillips after some wasted gestures realized that nobody was looking at her and sat down quietly on the turf until this paralyzing state of affairs should cease the caravan remained the centre of interest without either indecent haste or any complete pause it pursued its way down the road towards the tranquil village below except for the rumbling of its wheels and an occasional concussion it made very little sound once or twice there was a faint sound of breaking crockery from its interior and once the phantom of an angry yell but that was all there was an effect of discovered personality about the thing this vehicle which had hitherto been content to play a background part a yellow patch amidst the scenery was now revealing an individuality it was purposeful and touched with a suggestion of playfulness at once kindly and human it had its thoughtful instance its phases of quick decision yet never once did it altogether lose a certain mellow dignity there was nothing servile about it. Never for a moment, for example, did it betray its blind obedience to gravitation. It was rather as if it and gravitation were going hand in hand. It came out into the road, butted into the bank, swept round, meditated for a full second, and then shafts foremost headed downhill, going quietly faster and faster, and swaying from bank to bank. The shafts went before it, like arms held out. It had a quality, as if it were a favorite elephant running to a beloved master, from whom it had been overlong separated or a slightly intoxicated and altogether happy yellow guinea-pig making for some coveted food at a considerable distance followed professor bowles a miracle of compact energy running so fast that he seemed only to touch the ground at very rare intervals and then dispersedly in their order and according to their natures the others there was fortunately very little on the road there was a perambulator containing twins whose little girl guardian was so fortunate as to be high up on the bank gathering blackberries a ditcher ditching a hawker lost in thought his cart drawn by a poor little black screw of a pony and loaded with the cheap flawed crockery that is so popular among the poor a dog asleep in the middle of the village street amidst this choice of objects the caravan displayed a whimsical humanity it reduced the children in the perambulator to tears but passed it might have reduced them to a sort of red currant jelly it lurched heavily towards the ditcher and spared him it chased the hawker up the bank it whipped off a wheel from the cart of crockery which after an interval of astonishment fell like a vast objurgation. 
and then it directed its course with a grim intentness toward the dog. It just missed the dog. He woke up not a moment too soon. He fled with a yelp of dismay. And then the caravan careered on a dozen yards further, lost energy and the only really undignified thing in its whole career, stood on its head in a wide, wet ditch. It did this with just the slightest lapse into emphasis. There. It was as if it gave a grunt, and perhaps there was the faintest suggestion of William in that grunt. And then it became quite still. For a time the caravan seemed finished and done. Its steps hung from its upper end like the tongue of a tired dog, except for a few minute noises, as though it was scratching itself inside, it was as inanimate as death itself. But up the hill road the twins were weeping, the hawker and the ditcher were saying raucous things, the hawker's pony had backed into the ditch and was taking ill-advised steps, for which it was afterwards to be sorry amidst his stock in trade, and Professor Bowles, Mrs. Bowles, Mr. Geege, Captain Douglas, and Mrs. Geege were running, running. One heard the various patter of their feet. And then came signs of life at the upward door of the caravan, a hand, an arm, an active investigating leg seeking a hold, a large nose, a small intent vicious eye, in fact, William. William maddened. Professor Bowles had reached the caravan. With a startling agility, he clambered up by the wheels and step and confronted the unfortunate driver. It was an occasion for mutual sympathy rather than anger, but the professor was hasty, efficient, and unsympathetic with the lower classes, and William's was an ill-regulated temperament. "'You consummate ass!' began Professor Bowles. When William heard Professor Bowles say this, incontinently he smote him in the face, and when Professor Bowles was smitten in the face he grappled instantly, and very bravely and resolutely, with William. For a moment they struggled fearfully. They seemed to be endowed instantaneously with innumerable legs, and then suddenly they fell through the door of the caravan into the interior their limbs seemed to whirl for a wonderful instant and then they were summoned up the smash was tremendous you would not have thought there was nearly so much in the caravan still left to get broken a healing silence at length smothered noises of still inadequate adjustment within the village population, in a state of scared delight, appeared at a score of points and converged upon the catastrophe. Sounds of renewed dissension between William and the professor, inside the rearing yellow bulk, promised further interests and added an element of mystery to this manifest disaster. Subchapter 12 As Bealby still grasping his great branch of yew watched these events a sense of human futility invaded his youthful mind for the first time he realized the gulf between intention and result he had meant so well he perceived it would be impossible to explain the thought of even attempting to explain things to professor bowles was repellent to him 
he looked about him with round despairful eyes he selected a direction which seemed to promise the maximum of concealment with the minimum of conversational possibility and in that direction and without needless delay he set off eager to turn over an entirely fresh page in his destiny as soon as possible to get away the idea possessed all his being from the crest of the downs a sweet voice floated after his retreating form and never overtook him dick subchapter thirteen then presently miss phillips arose to her feet gathered her skirts in her hand and with her delicious chin raised and an expression of countenance that was almost businesslike descended towards the gathering audience below she wore wide flowing skirts and came down the hill in artemisian strides it was high time that somebody looked at her End of chapter four part two chapter five bealby a holiday this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by rita boutros bealby a holiday by h g wells chapter five the seeking of bealby part one Subchapter One. On the same Monday evening that witnessed Bealby's first experience of the theatre, Mr. Mergelson, the house steward of Chance, walked slowly and thoughtfully across the corner of the park between the laundry and the gardens. His face was much recovered from the accidents of his collision with the Lord Chancellor. Resort to raw meat in the kitchen had checked the development of his injuries and only a few contusions in the side of his face were more than faintly traceable and suffering had on the whole rather ennobled than depressed his bearing he had a black eye but it was not he felt a common black eye it came from high quarters and through no fault of mr mergelson's own he carried it well it was a fruit of duty rather than the outcome of wanton pleasure-seeking or misdirected passion he found mr darling in profound meditation over some peach-trees against the wall they were not doing so well as they ought to do and mr darling was engaged in wondering why good evening mr darling said mr mergelson mr darling ceased rather slowly to wander and turned to his friend good evening mr mergelson he said I don't quite like the look of these here peaches. Blowed if I do. Mr. Mergelson glanced at the peaches, and then came to the matter that was nearest his heart. You haven't, I suppose, seen anything of your stepson these last two days, Mr. Darling? Naturally not, said Mr. Darling, putting his head on one side and regarding his interlocutor. Naturally not. I've left that to you, Mr. Mergelson. Well, that's what's awkward said Mr. Mergelson, and then with a forced easiness. You see, I ain't seen him either. No? No, I lost sight of him. Mr. Mergelson appeared to reflect. Late on Saturday night. How's that, Mr. Mergelson? 
Mr. Mergelson considered the difficulties of lucid explanation. "'We missed him,' said Mr. Mergelson simply, regarding the well-weeded garden path with a calculating expression, and then lifting his eyes to Mr. Darling's with an air of great candor. "'And we continue to miss him.' "'Well,' said Mr. Darling, "'that's rum.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Mergelson. "'It's decidedly rum,' said Mr. Darling.' "'We thought he might be idling from his work, or cut off home. "'You didn't send down to ask. "'We was too busy with the weekend people. "'On the all we thought if he had cut home, on the all it wasn't a very serious loss. "'He got in the way at times, and there was one or two things happened. "'Now that they're all gone and he hasn't turned up, "'well, I came down, Mr. Darlin, to arst you. "'Where is he gone?' "'He ain't come here,' said Mr. Darling, surveying the garden. "'I arf expected he might, and I arf expected he mightn't,' said Mr. Merkelson, with the air of one who had anticipated Mr. Darling's answer, but hesitated to admit as much. The two gentlemen paused for some seconds, and regarded each other searchingly. "'Where's he got to?' said Mr. Darling. "'Well,' said Mr. Mergelson, putting his hands where the tails of his short jacket would have been, if it hadn't been short, and looking extraordinarily like a parrot in its more thoughtful moods, "'to tell you the truth, Mr. Darling, I've had a dream about him, and it worries me. I got a sort of idea of him, as being in one of them secret passages. Iden away. There was a guest, well, I say it with all respect, but anyone might have id from him.' morning soon as the weekend had cleared up and gone home me and thomas went through them passages as well as we could not a trace of em but i still got that idea he was a wriggling inclining enterprising sort of boy i've checked him for it once or twice said mr darling with the red light of fierce memories gleaming for a moment in his eyes he might even said mr Mergelson, well very likely have got himself jammed in one of them secret passages jammed repeated mr darling well got himself somewhere where he can't get out i've heard tell there's walled-up dungeons they say said mr darling there's underground passages to the abbey ruins three good mile away awkward said mr Mergelson. Dratch's eyes, said Mr. Darling, scratching his head. What does he mean by it? We can't leave him there, said Mr. Mergelson. I knowed a young devil once what crawled up a culvert, said Mr. Darling. His father had to dig him out like a fox. Lord, how he walloped him for it. Mistake to have a boy in so young, said Mr. Mergelson. It's all very awkward, said Mr. Darling, surveying every aspect of the case. You see... His mother sets a most extraordinary value on him, most extraordinary. I don't know whether she oughtn't to be told, said Mr. Merkelson. I was thinking of that. Mr. Darling was not the sort of man to meet trouble halfway. He shook his head at that. Not yet, Mr. Merkelson. I don't think yet. Not until everything's been tried. I don't think there's any need to give her needless distress, none whatever. "'If you don't mind, I think I'll come up to-night, nine-ish, say, "'and have a talk to you and Thomas about it. "'A quiet talk. "'Best to begin with a quiet talk. "'It's a dashed rum-go. "'And me and you, we got to think it out a bit.' "'That's what I think,' said Mr. Mergelson, "'with unconcealed relief at Mr. Darling's friendliness. 
that's exactly the light mr darling in which it appears to me because you see if he's all right and in the house why doesn't he come for his victuals sub chapter two in the pantry that evening the question of telling someone was discussed further it was discussed over a number of glasses of mr mergelson's beer for following a sound tradition mr mergelson brewed at chance and sometimes he brewed well and sometimes he brewed ill and sometimes he brewed weak and sometimes he brewed strong and there was no monotony in the cups at chance this was sturdy stuff and suited mr darling's mood and ever and again with an author's natural weakness and an affectation of abstraction mr mergelson took the jug out empty and brought it back foaming henry the second footman was disposed to a forced hopefulness so as not to spoil the evening but thomas was sympathetic and distressed the red-haired youth made cigarettes with a little machine licked them and offered them to the others saying little as became him etiquette deprived him of an uninvited beer and mr merkelson's inattention completed what etiquette began i can't bear to think of the poor little beggar stuck head foremost into some cobwebby cranny load if i can said thomas getting help from the jug he was an interesting kid said thomas in a tone that was frankly obituary he didn't like his work one could see that but he was lively and i tried to help him along all i could when i wasn't too busy myself there was something sensitive about him said thomas mr mergelson sat with his arms loosely thrown out over the table what we got to do is tell someone he said i don't see how i can put off telling her ladyship after to-morrow morning and then evan help us course i got to tell my missus said mr darling and poured in a preoccupied way some running over we'll go through them passages again now before we go to bed said mr mergelson far as we can but there is alls and chinks only a boy could get through i got to tell the missus said mr darling that's what's worrying me as the evening wore on there was a tendency on the part of mr darling to make this the refrain of his discourse he sought advice how'd you tell the missus he asked mr mergelson and emptied a glass to control his impatience before mr mergelson replied i shall tell her ladyship just simply the fact i shall say your ladyship here's my boy gone and we don't know where and as she asks me questions so shall i give particulars mr darling reflected and then shook his head slowly how'd you tell the missus he asked thomas glad i haven't got to said thomas poor little beggar yes but ow would you tell her mr darling said varying the accent very carefully i'd go to her and i'd pat her back and i'd say bear up see and when she asks what for i'd just tell her what for gradual like you don't know the missus said mr darling henry how'd you tell her let her find out said henry women do mr darling reflected and decided that two was unworkable how'd you he asked with an air of desperation of the red-haired youth the red-haired youth remained for a moment with his tongue extended licking the gum of a cigarette paper and his eyes on mr darling then he finished the cigarette slowly giving his mind very carefully to the question he had been honoured with 
i think he said in a low serious voice i should say just simply mary or susan or whatever her name is tilda supplied mr darling tilda i should say the lord gave and the lord hath taken away tilda is gone something like that the red-haired boy cleared his throat he was rather touched by his own simple eloquence mr darling reflected on this with profound satisfaction for some moments then he broke out almost querulously yes but brast him where's he gone anyhow said mr darling i ain't going to tell her not till the morning i ain't going to lose my night's rest if i have lost my stepson no how mr mergelson i must say i don't think i ever have tasted better beer never it's it's famous beer he had some more on his way back through the moonlight to the gardens mr darling was still unsettled as to the exact way of breaking things to his wife he had come out from the house a little ruffled because of mr mergelson's opposition to a rather good idea of his that he should go about the house and holler for him a bit he'd know my voice you see ladyship wouldn't mind very likely sleep by now but the moonlight dispelled his irritation how was he to tell his wife he tried various methods to the listening moon there was for example the off-hand newsy way you know that boy yours then a pause for the reply then he's totally disappeared only there were difficulties about the word totally or the distressed impersonal manner dreadful thing happened dreadful thing that poor little chap artie totally disappeared totally again or the personal intimate note don't know what you'll say to me tilda when i tell you what to got to say thoroughly bad news seems they lost our artie up there clean lost him can't find him nowhere at all or the authoritative kindly tilda you go control yourself go show what you're made of our boy he's lost then he addressed the park at large with a sudden despair don't care what i say she'll blame it on to me i know her after that the enormous pathos of the situation got hold of him poor little chap he said poor little fell and shed a few natural tears loved him just as me own son as the circumambient knight made no reply, he repeated the remark in a louder, almost domineering tone. He spent some time trying to climb the garden wall, because the door did not seem to be in the usual place. Have to inquire about that in the morning. Difficult to see everything is all right when one is so bereaved. But finally he came on the door round a corner. He told his wife merely that he intended to have a peaceful night, and took off his boots in a defiant and intermittent manner the morning would be soon enough she looked at him pretty hard and he looked at her ever and again but she never made a guess at it bed subchapter three so soon as the weekenders had dispersed and sir peter had gone off to london to attend to various matters affecting the peptonizing of milk and the distribution of baby soothers about the habitable globe lady laxton went back to bed and remained in bed until midday on tuesday 
nothing short of complete rest and the utmost kindness from her maid would she felt save her from a nervous breakdown of the most serious description the festival had been stormy to the end sir peter's ill-advised attempts to deprive lord moggridge of alcohol had led to a painful struggle at lunch and this had been followed by a still more unpleasant scene between host and guest in the afternoon this is an occasion for tact sir peter had said and had gone off to tackle the lord chancellor leaving his wife to the direst best founded apprehensions for sir peter's tact was a thing by itself a mixture of misconception recrimination and familiarity that was rarely well received she had had to explain to the sunday dinner party that his lordship had been called away suddenly something connected with the great seal lady laxton had whispered in a discreet mysterious whisper one or two simple hearers were left with the persuasion that the great seal had been taken suddenly unwell and probably in a slightly indelicate manner thomas had to paint mergelson's eye with grease paint left over from some private theatricals it had been a patched-up affair altogether and before she retired to bed that night lady laxton had given way to her accumulated tensions and wept there was no reason whatever why to wind up the day sir peter should have stayed in her room for an hour saying what he thought of lord moggridge she felt she knew quite well enough what he thought of lord moggridge and on these occasions he always used a number of words that she did her best to believe as a delicately brought up woman were unfamiliar to her ears so on monday as soon as the guests had gone she went to bed again and stayed there trying as a good woman should to prevent herself thinking of what the neighbours could be thinking and saying of the whole affair by studying a new and very circumstantial pamphlet by bishop fowle on social evils turning over the moving illustrations of some recent anti-vivisection literature and re-reading the accounts in the morning papers of a colliery disaster in the north of england to such women as lady laxton brought up in an atmosphere of refinement that is almost colourless and living a life troubled only by small social conflicts and the minor violence of sir peter blameless to the point of complete uneventfulness and secure and comfortable to the point of tedium there is something amounting to fascination in the wickedness and sufferings of more normally situated people there is a real attraction and solace in the thought of pain and stress and as her access to any other accounts of vice and suffering was restricted she kept herself closely in touch with the more explicit literature of the various movements for human moralization that distinguish our age and responded eagerly and generously to such painful catastrophes as enliven it the counterfoils of her cheque-book witnessed to her gratitude for these vicarious sensations she figured herself to herself in her daydreams as a calm and white and shining intervention checking and reproving amusements of an undesirable nature and earning the tearful blessings of the mangled by-products of industrial enterprise 
there is a curious craving for entire reality in the feminine composition and there were times when in spite of these feasts of particulars she wished she could come just a little nearer to the heady dreadfulnesses of life than simply writing a check against it she would have liked to have actually seen the votaries of evil blench and repent before her contributions to have herself unstrapped and revived and pitied some doomed and chloroformed victim of the so-called scientist to have herself participated in the stretcher and the hospital and humanity made marvellous by enlistment under the red cross badge but sir peter's ideals of womanhood were higher than his language and he would not let her soil her refinement with any vision of the pain and evil in the world sort of woman they want up there is a trained nurse he used to say when she broached the possibility of going to some famine or disaster you don't want to go prying old girl she suffered she felt from repressed heroism if ever she was to shine in disaster that disaster she felt must come to her she must not go to meet it and so you realize how deeply it stirred her how it brightened her and uplifted her to learn from mr mergelson's halting statements that perhaps that probably that almost certainly a painful and tragical thing was happening even now within the walls of chance that there was urgent necessity for action if anguish was to be witnessed before it had ended and life saved she clasped her hands she surveyed her large servitor with agonized green-gray eyes something must be done at once she said everything possible must be done poor little mite of course my lady may have run away oh no she cried he hasn't run away he hasn't run away how can you be so wicked mergelson of course he hasn't run away he's there now and it's too dreadful she became suddenly very firm and masterful the morning's colliery tragedy inspired her imagination we must get pickaxes she said we must organize search parties not a moment is to be lost mergelson not a moment get the men in off the roads get everyone you can and not a moment was lost the road men were actually at work in shants before their proper dinner hour was over they did quite a lot of things that afternoon every passage attainable from the dining-room opening was explored and where these passages gave off chinks and crannies they were opened up with a vigour which lady laxton had greatly stimulated by an encouraging presence and liberal doses of whisky through their efforts a fine new opening was made into the library from the wall near the window a hole big enough for a man to fall through because one did and a great piece of stonework was thrown down from the queen elizabeth tower exposing the upper portion of the secret passage to the light of day lady laxton herself and the head housemaid went round the panelling with a hammer and a chisel and called out are you there and attempted an opening wherever it sounded hollow the sweep was sent for to go up the old chimneys outside the present flues meanwhile mr darling had been sent with several of his men to dig for discover pick up 
and lay open the underground passage or disused drain whichever it was that was known to run from the corner of the laundry towards the old ice-house and that was supposed to reach to the abbey ruins after some bold exploratory excavations this channel was located and a report sent at once to lady laxton it was this and the new and alarming scar on the queen elizabeth tower that brought mr beaulieu plummer post-haste from the estate office up to the house mr beaulieu plummer was the marquis of cranberry's estate agent a man of great natural tact and charged among other duties with the task of seeing that the laxtons did not make away with shants during the period of their tenancy he was a sound compact little man rarely out of the extreme riding breeches and gaiters and he wore glasses that now glittered with astonishment as he approached lady laxton and her band of spade workers at his approach mr darling attempted to become invisible but he was unable to do so lady laxton mr beaulieu plummer appealed may i ask oh mr beaulieu plummer i'm so glad you've come a little boy suffocating i can hardly bear it suffocating cried mr beaulieu plummer where and was in a confused manner told he asked a number of questions that lady laxton found very tiresome but how did she know the boy was in the secret passage of course she knew was it likely she would do all this if she didn't know but mightn't he have run away how could he when he was in the secret passages but why not first scour the countryside by which time he would be smothered and starved and dead they parted with a mutual loss of esteem and mr beaulieu plummer looking very serious indeed ran as fast as he could straight to the village telegraph office or to be more exact he walked until he thought himself out of sight of lady laxton and then he took to his heels and ran he sat for some time in the parlor post-office spoiling telegraph forms and composing telegrams to sir peter laxton and lord cranberry he got these off at last and then drawn by an irresistible fascination went back to the park and watched from afar the signs of fresh activities on the part of lady laxton he saw men coming from the direction of the stables with large rakes with these they dragged the ornamental waters. Then a man with a pickaxe appeared against the skyline and crossed the roof in the direction of the clock tower, bound upon some unknown but probably highly destructive mission. Then he saw Lady Laxton going off to the gardens. She was going to console Mrs. Darling in her trouble. This she did through nearly an hour and a half and on the whole it seemed well to mr beaulieu plummer that so she should be occupied it was striking five when a telegraph boy on a bicycle came up from the village with a telegram from sir peter laxton stop all proceedings absolutely it said until i get to you lady laxton's lips tightened at the message she was back from much weeping with mrs darling and altogether finely strung here she felt was one of those supreme occasions when a woman must assert herself 
a matter of life or death she wired in reply and to show herself how completely she overrode such dictation as this she sent mr merkelson down to the village public-house with orders to engage any one he could find there for an evening's work on an extraordinarily liberal overtime scale after taking this step the spirit of lady laxton quailed she went and sat in her own room and quivered she quivered but she clenched her delicate fist she would go through with it come what might she would go on with the excavation all night if necessary but at the same time she began a little to regret that she had not taken earlier steps to demonstrate the improbability of bilby having simply run away she set to work to repair this omission she wrote off to the superintendent of police in the neighboring town to the nearest police magistrate and then on the off chance to various of her weekend guests including captain douglas if it was true that he had organized the annoyance of the lord chancellor and though she still rejected that view she did now begin to regard it as a permissible hypothesis then he might also know something about the mystery of this boy's disappearance each letter she wrote she wrote with greater fatigue and haste than its predecessor and more illegibly sir peter arrived long after dark he cut across the corner of the park to save time and fell into one of the trenches that mr darling had opened this added greatly to the eclat with which he came into the hall lady laxton withstood him for five minutes and then returned abruptly to her bedroom and locked herself in leaving the control of the operations in his hands if he's not in the house said sir peter all this is thundering foolery and if he's in the house he's dead if he's dead he'll smell in a bit and then'll be the time to look for him something to go upon instead of all this blind hacking the place about no wonder they're threatening proceedings Subchapter four upon captain douglas lady laxton's letter was destined to have a very distracting effect because as he came to think it over as he came to put her partly illegible allusions to secret passages and a missing boy side by side with his memories of lord moggridge's accusations and the general mystery of his expulsion from chance it became more and more evident to him that he had here something remarkably like a clue something that might serve to lift the black suspicion of irreverence and levity from his military reputation and he had already got to the point of suggesting to miss phillips that he ought to follow up and secure bilby forthwith before ever they came over the hill crest to witness the disaster to the caravan captain douglas it must be understood was a young man at war within himself he had been very nicely brought up firstly in a charming english home then in a preparatory school for selected young gentlemen then in a good set at eton then at sandhurst where the internal trouble had begun to manifest itself afterwards the bistershires there were three main strands in the composition of captain douglas in the first place and what was peculiarly his own quality was the keenest interest in the why of things and the how of things and the general mechanism of things 
he was fond of clocks curious about engines eager for science he had a quick brain and nimble hands he read jules verne and liked to think about going to the stars and making flying machines and submarines in those days when everybody knew quite certainly that such things were impossible his brain teemed with larval ideas that only needed air and light to become active full-fledged ideas there he excelled most of us in the next place but this second strand was just a strand that most young men have he had a natural keen interest in the other half of humanity he thought them lovely interesting wonderful and they filled him with warm curiosities and set his imagination cutting the prettiest capers and in the third place and there again he was ordinarily human he wanted to be liked admired approved well thought of and so constituted he had passed through the educational influence of that english home that preparatory school the good set at eton the sandhurst discipline the bistershire mess now the educational influence of the english home the preparatory school the good set at eton and sandhurst in those days though sandhurst has altered a little since was all to develop that third chief strand of his being to the complete suppression of the others to make him look well and unobtrusive dress well and unobtrusively behave well and unobtrusively carry himself well play games reasonably well do nothing else well and in the best possible form and the two brothers douglas who were really very much alike did honestly do their best to be such plain and simple gentlemen as our country demands taking pretentious established things seriously and not being odd or intelligent in spite of those insurgent strands but the strands were in them below the surface the disturbing impulses worked and at last forced their way out in one captain douglas as mrs rampound pillby told the lord chancellor the suppressed ingenuity broke out in disconcerting mystifications and practical jokes that led to a severance from portsmouth in the other the pent-up passions came out before the other ingredients in an uncontrollable devotion to the obvious and challenging femininity of miss madeleine phillips his training had made him proof against ordinary women, deaf, as it were, to their charms, but she, she had penetrated, and impulsive forces that have been pent up go with a bang when they go. The first strand in the composition of Captain Douglas has still to be accounted for, the sinister strain of intelligence and inventiveness and lively curiosity. On that he had kept a warier hold, so far that had not been noted against him he had his motor-bicycle it is true at a time when motor-bicycles were on the verge of the caddish to what extent a watchful eye might have found him suspicious that was all that showed i wish i could add it was all that there was but other things other things were going on nobody knew about them but they were going on more and more he read books not decent fiction not official biographies about other fellows fathers and all the old anecdotes brought up to date and so on but books with ideas you know philosophy social philosophy scientific stuff all that rot 
the sort of stuff they read in mechanics institutes. He thought. He could have controlled it, but he did not attempt to control it. He tried to think. He knew perfectly well that it wasn't good form, but a vicious attraction drew him on. He used to sit in his bedroom study at Sandhurst, with the door locked, and write down on a bit of paper what he really believed and why. He would cut all sorts of things to do this. He would question things no properly trained English gentleman ever questions. And he experimented. This, you know, was long before the French and American aviators. It was long before the coming of that emphatic lead from abroad without which no well-bred English mind permits itself to stir. In the darkest secrecy he used to make little models of cane and paper and elastic in the hope that somehow he would find out something about flying. Flying! That dream! He used to go off by himself to lonely places and climb up as high as he could and send these things fluttering earthward. He used to moon over them and muse about them. If anyone came upon him suddenly while he was doing these things, he would sit on his model or pretend it didn't belong to him or clap it into his pocket, whichever was most convenient, and assume the vacuous expression of a well-bred gentleman at leisure and so far nobody had caught him, but it was a dangerous practice. And finally, and this now is the worst and last thing to tell of his eccentricities, he was keenly interested in the science of his profession and intensely ambitious. He thought, though it wasn't his business to think, the business of a junior officer is to obey and look a credit to his regiment that the military science of the British Army was not nearly so bright as it ought to be, and that if big trouble came there might be considerable scope for an inventive man who had done what he could to keep abreast with foreign work, and a considerable weeding out of generals whose promotion had been determined entirely by their seniority amiability and unruffled connubial felicity he thought that the field artillery would be found out there was no good in making a fuss about it beforehand that no end of neglected dodges would have to be picked up from the enemy that the transport was feeble and a health service other than surgery and ambulance an unknown idea but he saw no remedy but experience so he worked hard in secret he worked almost as hard as some confounded foreigner might have done in the belief that after the first hard smash-up there might be a chance to do things outwardly of course he was sedulously all right but he could not quite hide the stir in his mind it broke out upon his surface in a chattering activity of incompleted sentences which he tried to keep as decently silly as he could he had done his utmost hitherto to escape the observation of the powers that were his infatuation for madeleine phillips had at any rate distracted censorious attention from these deeper infamies and now here was a crisis in his life through some idiotic entanglement manifestly connected with this missing boy he had got tarred by his brother's brush and was under grave suspicion for liveliness and disrespect the thing might be his professional ruin and he loved the suppressed possibilities of his work beyond measure 
it was a thing to make him absent-minded even in the company of madeleine subchapter five not only were the first and second strands in the composition of captain douglas in conflict with all his appearances and pretensions but they were also in conflict with one another he was full of that concealed resolve to do and serve and accomplish great things in the world that was surely purpose enough to hide behind an easy-going unpretending gentlemanliness but he was also tremendously attracted by madeleine phillips more particularly when she was not there a beautiful woman may be the inspiration of a great career this however he was beginning to find was not the case with himself he had believed it at first and written as much and said as much and said it very variously and gracefully but becoming more and more distinctly clear to his intelligence was the fact that the very reverse was the case miss madeleine phillips was making it very manifest to captain douglas that she herself was a career that a lover with any other career in view need not as the advertisements say apply and the time she took up the distress of being with her and the distress of not being with her she was such a proud and lovely and entrancing and distressing being to remember and such a vain and difficult thing to be with she knew clearly that she was made for love for she had made herself for love and she went through life like its empress with all mankind and numerous women at her feet and she had an ideal of the lover who should win her which was like an oleographic copy of a laszlo portrait of douglas greatly magnified he was to rise rapidly to great things he was to be a conqueror and administrator while attending exclusively to her and incidentally she would gather desperate homage from all other men of mark and these attentions would be an added glory to her love for him at first captain douglas had been quite prepared to satisfy all these requirements he had met her at shorncliffe for her people were quite good military people and he had worshipped his way straight to her feet he had made the most delightfully simple and delicate love to her he had given up his secret vice of thinking for the writing of quite surprisingly clever love-letters and the little white paper models had ceased for a time to flutter in lonely places and then the thought of his career returned to him from a new aspect as something he might lay at her feet and once it had returned to him it remained with him some day he said and it may not be so very long some of those scientific chaps will invent flying then the army will have to take it up you know i should love she said to soar through the air he talked one day of going on active service how would it affect them if he had to do so it was a necessary part of a soldier's lot but i should come too she said i should come with you it might not be altogether convenient, he said, for already he had learnt that Madeleine Phillips usually travelled with quite a large number of trunks and considerable impressiveness. Of course, she said, it would be splendid. How could I let you go alone? You would be the great general, and I should be with you always. Not always very comfortable, he suggested. Silly boy, I shouldn't mind that. How little you know me any hardship 
a woman if she isn't a nurse i should come dressed as a man i would be your groom he tried to think of her dressed as a man but nothing on earth could get his imagination any further than a vision of her dressed as a principal boy she was so delightfully and valiantly not virile her hair would have flowed her body would have moved a richly fluent femininity visible through any disguise Subchapter six that was in the opening stage of the controversy between their careers in those days they were both acutely in love with each other their friends thought the spectacle quite beautiful they went together so well admirers fluttered with the pride of participation asked them for weekends together those theatrical weekends that begin on sunday morning and end on monday afternoon she confided widely and when at last there was something like a rupture it became the concern of a large circle of friends the particulars of the breach were differently stated it would seem that looking ahead he had announced his intention of seeing the french army manoeuvres just when it seemed probable that she would be out of an engagement but i ought to see what they are doing he said they're going to try those new dirigibles then should she come he wanted to whisk about it wouldn't be any fun for her they might get landed at nightfall in any old hole and besides people would talk especially as it was in france one could do unconventional things in england one couldn't do in france atmosphere was different for a time after that halting explanation she maintained a silence then she spoke in a voice of deep feeling she perceived she said that he wanted his freedom she would be the last person to hold a reluctant lover to her side he might go to any manoeuvres he might go if he wished round the world he might go away from her forever she would not detain him cripple him hamper a career she had once been assured she inspired the unfortunate man torn between his love and his profession protested that he hadn't meant that then what had he meant he realized he had meant something remarkably like it and he found great difficulty in expressing these fine distinctions she banished him from her presence for a month said he might go to his manoeuvres with her blessing as for herself that was her own affair some day perhaps he might know more of the heart of a woman she choked back tears very beautifully and military science suddenly became a trivial matter but she was firm he wanted to go he must go for a month anyhow he went sadly into this opening breach rushed friends it was the inestimable triumph of judy bowles to get there first to begin with madeleine confided in her and then availing herself of the privilege of a distant cousinship she commanded douglas to tea in her knightsbridge flat and had a good straight talk with him she liked good straight talks with honest young men about their love affairs it was almost the only form of flirtation that the professor who was a fierce tough undiscriminating man upon the essentials of matrimony permitted her and there was something peculiarly gratifying about douglas's complexion under her guidance he was induced to declare that he could not live without madeleine that her love was the heart of his life without it he was nothing and with it 
he would conquer the world. Judy permitted herself great protestations on behalf of Madeleine, and Douglas was worked up to the pitch of kissing her intervening hand. He had little silvery hairs, she saw, all over his temples, and he was such a simple, perplexed dear. It was a rich, deep, beautiful afternoon for Judy. And then, in a very obvious way, Judy, who was already deeply in love with the idea of a caravan tour, and the wind on the heath, and the gypsy life, and the open road, and all the rest of it, worked this charming little love difficulty into her scheme, utilized her reluctant husband to arrange for the coming of Douglas, confided in Mrs. Geege, and Douglas went off with his perplexities. He gave up all thought of France, weekended at Chanson's stead to his own grave injury, returned to London unexpectedly by a Sunday train, packed for France, and started. He reached Reims on Monday afternoon, and then the image of Madeleine, which always became more beautiful and mysterious and commanding with every mile he put between them, would not let him go on. He made unconvincing excuses to the daily excess military expert with whom he was to have seen things. "'There's a woman in it, my boy, and you're a fool to go,' said the daily excess man. "'But of course you'll go, and I for one don't blame you.' He hurried back to London, and was at Judy's trysting place even as Judy had anticipated." And when he saw Madeleine standing in the sunlight, pleased and proud and glorious, with a smile in her eyes and trembling on her lips, with a strand or so of her beautiful hair and a streamer or so of delightful blue flutterings in the wind about her gracious form, it seemed to him for the moment that leaving the maneuvers and coming back to England was quite a right and almost a magnificent thing to do. End of chapter 5, part 1